just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Which hitters and pitchers are must-ads for the stretch run? I'll ask Joe Orico from SportsEthos.com and the Fantasy MLB Today podcast about that and a whole lot more next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, August the 26th. It's show number 33 of the 2022 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do have another great Friday full edition for you. We'll have our feature expert interview with Joe Orico from SportsEthos.com and the Fantasy MLB Today podcast discussing must-add hitters and pitchers, and a few fades, for the stretch run. Why his fantasy baseball writing and podcasting focuses on shallow online leagues and head-to-head, and he'll have his boons and banes. Later, we'll have our Market Watch player news reports. Harold Nichols has coverage of the National League, including Bryce Harper, Zach Wheeler, Brandon Belt, and some concerning results about Cincinnati shortstop Jose Barrero. And Ray Murphy has news from the American League, including a closer shuffle in Houston, an outfield shuffle in New York, another Byron Buxton shuffle to the IL in Minnesota, and a whole lot more. We'll also have our regular commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the frequent flyer, Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky looks at Chicago Cubs first baseman Matt Mervis, and in extra innings, I'll be talking about the heroism of Rod Carew. It's another big Friday full edition. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? There's a new pitcher on the Jays in second place for wins behind Alec Manoa. We gotta talk some baseball. Yes, the Jays have a new pitcher behind Alec Manoa's 12 wins on the team leaderboard. Is it Kevin Gosman? It is not. Is it Jose Barrios? Ross Stripling? You say Kikuchi? Dave Steeb. Not, 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 not. Both Gosman and Barrios have nine wins apiece, but the second place guy is right-handed submarine reliever Adam Simber, who picked up his 10th win on Tuesday night in extra innings against Boston. Since 2007, only 12 full-time relievers have picked up 10 wins in a season. Simber joins these guys, Jose Arredondo, who had 10 wins for Los Angeles in 2008, Tyler Clippard had 11 for Washington in 2010, Matt Belisle had 10 for Colorado in 2011. Mike Dunn had 10 in 2014 for Miami. Tony Watson had 10 in 2014 for Pittsburgh. Brad Brock had 10 in 2016 for Baltimore. Andrew Miller had 10 in 2016, divided between Cleveland and New York. John Gant had 11 in 2019 for St. Louis. Brandon Workman had 10 in 2019 for Boston. Chad Green had 10 in 2021 for the Yankees. Alex Reyes had 10 in 2021 for St. Louis, and Paul Sewald had 10 in 2021 for Seattle. 
And I'll wrap this up with a quick quiz question for you. Which reliever, and I mean a full-time, zero-starts reliever, in the post-1976 free agency era had 30 combined wins over two consecutive seasons and 51 combined saves, and with two different teams? We'll have the answer to the quiz question just a little later in the show, but right now it's time for the first inning of this Friday Full Edition, Part 1 of our feature expert interview with Joe Orico. From SportsEthos.com and the Fantasy MLB Today podcast, Joe, welcome to Baseball HQ Radio. This is your first time. This is my first time. I really appreciate uh, you having me on. We have actually chatted once before on Justin Mason's Potapalooza, but this is the uh, first time on your show, so I really appreciate the invite. Uh, we got a lot to get through, so it uh, should be a great time here. Yeah, I remember that Potapalooza thing is always a lot of fun, and uh, I look forward to doing it every year. I don't know if you've noticed this, but I actually gave away a, an appearance on the show to one of the people who donated to the charity, and the guy who won, he was a guy I actually knew from First Pitch Arizona, or had met there, and he's from New Brunswick, so another Canadian guy gets onto the pod. You're a Canadian guy, so uh, we're filling up the stat sheet here. I am from Toronto. I am a Canadian. I'm hoping that your uh, American listeners don't get... Uh... Don't get too sick if we uh, maybe go into some Blue Jays talk or talking, maybe like we were off the air talking some CFL. Hopefully, uh, <laughs> hopefully we don't drive away your viewership here. Yeah, that's right. Well, they don't even like it when we talk about the NFL on this podcast. They're pretty hardcore baseball fans. And uh, every so often I get a guy on who just knows a lot about fantasy football or fantasy hockey, even you'd think fantasy hockey, right? That people, there's lots of Americans who like hockey, but no, they don't want to, they don't want to hear about it. They just, I get messages, stick to baseball. So I'll stick to baseball. Uh, start Starting of, uh, about baseball, Joe, how and when did you get started playing fantasy baseball? It's probably about five, six years ago. Uh, now, my original intro to fantasy sports was through fantasy basketball. That was my, my bread and butter for a long time. And I think it still arguably is. Uh, I just find it a lot easier to predict, relative to baseball anyway, uh, on a given night what a player is going to do. So I, I like that somewhat predictability you got with basketball. And that's where I started, and then I started to morph more into baseball. And now I pretty much play fantasy everything. But in terms of baseball, I played baseball throughout my childhood. I was not bad. I wasn't going anywhere. I knew that from a pretty young age. But I always enjoyed it. I always watched the games. And so I figured I might as well start playing fantasy. This was probably five, six years ago. And, yeah, I've become uh, totally obsessed in these last few seasons, to say the least. What's the weirdest sport that you play fantasy? I know guys who play like fantasy cricket and fantasy scuba diving. You bet, you name it, they can figure <laughs> a way way to make fantasy out of it. Uh, no, I don't do any of the really obscure ones. I think probably the most obscure to most people would be hockey. And I don't really do much season-long hockey, maybe some DFS here and there. But uh, mostly we're sticking with baseball, basketball, and football. Nothing too, uh, Nothing too out there. I think everybody of my generation, and I'm uh, probably a generation older than you, but all of us Canadians who ended up in fantasy baseball started in fantasy hockey because it was a big thing back in the day to have hockey pools and you'd uh, you'd have drafts and it was basically just points, scoring points. There was one category and whoever amassed the most scoring points won the league. And I, I remember playing in leagues where you couldn't even replace your players during the year. You just It was like a draft and hold of your whole roster. Gradually it gets more and more uh, involved and there's more options and stuff like that, but uh, yeah, I'm of the era that Wayne Gretzky had to be drafted as two separate guys like Shoei Otani. Uh, you had to draft his goals and his assists separately because otherwise whoever got first pick in the draft would win the draft because he's scoring 200 points a year and everybody else, the next guy's at 100, you know, so uh, yeah. those were interesting days. So over over the time that we play these fantasy sports, we get 
players who become our favorites because they play such an important role on winning teams or just because you like them? Who's your favorite all-time batter that had an appearance on one or more of your fantasy baseball teams? I would have to say Trey Turner, I think. Trey Turner, these last few seasons, has been a mainstay on a lot of my teams. I've drafted him wherever I could. And he just produces in five categories. Just so so consistently is able to do everything for you. I think that he makes a legitimate case to be the number one overall pick again next season. And he's just, I know it's not the you know most unique pick because he's pretty uh, pretty mainstream. He's always going to be in those first few draft picks, first round or so of value. But Trey Turner has definitely been my guy now for the last several seasons. Yeah, I'm curious when you say he's he might be the first overall pick. I can't really see anybody else being the first overall pick next year. I know that some people are talking about Juan Soto, and I've seen some people talking about uh, Aaron Judge, given the amount of home runs that he hits, and he steals enough bases to make himself relevant. And I think he's probably the top dollar producer in fantasy baseball this year. But on the other hand, he's an outfielder. There's usually more of them. Who else do you think would be in those top two or three spots for you going into next year? Well, Julio Rodriguez, uh, absolutely. I saw a tweet that somebody sent out today that he was actually the fastest player in American League history to reach the 2020 mark, five or six games fewer than it took Mike Trout. So that right there, I mean, the entire season as a whole, but when you look at a guy who has that 30-30 potential, uh, Julio Rodriguez, I think, really has a case to be made as the 1-0-1. I think Ronald Acuna can also have a case there. Uh, Probably it's going to be some combination in the top five of Acuna, Turner, Soto, um, hard hard to really say beyond the guys that we just mentioned there. I think those are going to be the consensus top few picks, and then it'll fall off a little bit from there, I think. But Julio and uh, and Ronald Acuna, I think, are the main guys that I'm also looking at there. Not that we're we're getting a little ahead of ourselves, but since we're talking about it, how do you think the pitching's going to fall next year? Because uh, there was a lot of, for the last couple of seasons, we've had a lot of guys saying, you know, you need to take those eight pocket aces, they, they call them, or you got to get your ace pitcher round one, round two. And then this year, a lot of those pocket aces, round one, round two guys disappointed their fantasy managers. And now the, the sort of the scuttlebutt seems to be, yeah, let's push them all back down where they used to be in round three, round four. Uh, where do you think the top pitcher's going to go and who might it be? For me, I think the number one pitcher is likely to be Shane McClanahan still. I've seen a couple people still talking. I know there was uh, an NFBC draft and hold that they did a week or so ago that Rob DiPietro organized, kind of looking at next year. Um, and I think they did the first seven rounds or so. And the first pitcher off the board was Garrett Cole. I don't think that we're likely to see that. I think he's a little bit more inconsistent at this point in his career. I think he'll still probably be somewhere in the first round. But I think the first pitcher will likely be McClanahan or Corbin Burns, those guys who are pitching for good teams, who can give you crazy high strikeout numbers, and who have really, I mean, especially McClanahan, taken a step forward this season. I think if I had to say one pitcher right now, I would go I'd go with Shane. I would too. I just wonder how high do you think he might go? We've seen, gosh, I remember DeGrom going first overall in some drafts in the last couple of years. It didn't work out very well either time. But where do you see a guy like McClanahan going? And I guess a lot of it would depend on your philosophy of how you're planning to roster build your draft yeah i think he'd be in the first round uh probably in that six to ten range in the first round i don't think he's going to surpass the guys we mentioned before acuna and probably even soto and i was about to say tatis there for a second but i had to had to catch myself he won't he will not be going in the first round anymore although who knows some people might be crazy enough to take him in the first round but i think in terms of uh, mcclanahan probably somewhere on the back end uh middle to back end of the first round there you know, talking of Tatis, I was thinking about it that he's going to miss 
80 games total, which is about 30 this year and 50 next year. So that gets him back into the lineup maybe early June. So if you knock two months off him, obviously I don't think he's a first-round pick, but he could still, you could make a case for him as a fifth-round pick maybe if he comes back and gets four months worth of what would be a kind of a 40 homer, 40 stolen base kind of season, which he's capable of. Absolutely, yeah. If you're in a tournament that has an overall component to it, uh, NFBC tournaments in particular, I think, we might see him get pushed up those draft boards a little bit just because people will be a little bit scared, but there will be a couple of people who say, I'm willing to take the chance. And I think we might even see him go higher than the fifth, depending on the, the format, the scoring. I think we could even see him in the third or the fourth, similarly to maybe what happened with Ronald Acuna this season, where he missed the first little while. We knew he was going to miss a little while, but he still ended up going in that second, third round range. I read something interesting somewhere about Tatis in that the uh, the enforced layoff might actually be a benefit for him because he'll finally get a chance to get all of his various injuries sorted out and get back to 100% or as close to 100% healthy as he hasn't been for quite a while. And if he's getting four months, but they're all four really good, healthy months, gosh, he could do uh, almost anything to justify a third-round pick. Yeah, and I don't really know why he waited this long to have, I believe they've announced that he's going to end up having an, op- an operation on his shoulder. I just don't know why he waited this whole season. Why wouldn't he have done this earlier when he knew he was already going to be missing time? It just feels, maybe it will be a, a positive at the end of the day for his fantasy value for next season, that he'll just be fully recovered, we won't have to worry about relapses, hopefully, and that he can just play 120 games and give us standard Tatis value there, hopefully. Who's your favorite all-time pitcher on one of your own fantasy baseball teams? Um, well, the question definitely changes once we put the fantasy aspect. My favorite pitcher of all time is Roy Halladay. But in terms of fantasy pitching, I think it probably has to be Jacob deGrom these last couple of seasons. A guy who I avoided this season because I tend to be more risk-averse. I had no Tatis, no deGrom. I didn't even want to draft Ronald Acuna because I just didn't want to go into the season with anybody who's injured. But Jacob DeGrom these last couple of seasons has been really, truly, for me, one of the best pitchers I've ever seen in front of me or on film. Uh, I, I, I Just ridiculous from a real-life and fantasy point of view, there's no one that I'd rather have. And there's nobody that I would have rather had these last couple of seasons as well. How did you get started in the fantasy baseball touting business? Well, that's an interesting story here. So I am, what I did after high school was I took several years off. I was working at a hardware store. I worked at Canadian Tire for a lot of years. Once COVID hit, I stopped working. I have a couple family members who have asthma, lung stuff, so I didn't want to risk giving them COVID. And then I went back to school. I went into my journalism program. I go to Humber. And I started to think about maybe doing something like this as more of a possibly a hobby slash maybe some kind of side job uh, down the line. And I saw some tweets that my company, Sports Ethos, was sending out saying they were looking for people in baseball, football, and basketball. So I originally sent in a writing submission on the basketball side. I started the onboarding process as a basketball writer. And then they said, well, we've got a couple of other positions here podcasting wise. And I thought, you know, I like baseball more than any other sport. It's something that I want to do. Maybe sports journalism is something that I'd really be interested in. So they gave me a shot to uh, to head up their baseball uh, department. It was a startup. We only had done basketball in the past, but uh, I got started through them doing the podcast, doing my articles uh, at sportsethos.com. And they've really, I have to give them credit. They, they put their eggs in my basket. I have not really 
any uh, background in this before they took a chance on me. So uh, Sports Ethos taking a chance really is where I where I got started here this season. It's good to hear somebody with a journalism background. I graduated from a journalism program too, and it was a real big help when I got started in this business. I was working at a newspaper at the time. But yeah, having some journalism awareness is a real help, I think, in what we do here. And it helps us, I think, create an angle to try to provide to listeners and readers something that they might not be getting elsewhere. What's your angle on providing information that you think maybe other places aren't providing to listeners or maybe to your listeners that they don't get from other places where they might go? My particular angle now, I think the industry is pretty focused on high stakes tournaments. A lot of content is focused on the NFBC and fab pickups, which the reality is a lot of people play in standard Yahoo 10 or 12 team leagues that have a, a pretty standard waiver wire system. And a lot of the fab and the high stakes content isn't really going to be for them per se. So not that to not to say they couldn't enjoy a podcast talking about high stakes leagues, but what I try and do is focus more on the fantasy every man, those in your 10 and 12 team leagues with daily changes. So what I try and do mostly is focus on Yahoo and ESPN leagues, occasionally CBS, but mostly I play Yahoo and ESPN. So I focus on their roster percentages, the trends in those leagues, and generally that's uh, what I put most of my work and content into. It seems like those are the kind of leagues that it would also probably be more valuable to guys who are just playing in home leagues. They're not playing in organized online leagues or big money leagues. But most home leagues, I think, are pretty relatively shallow. They uh, tend to have 12-team mixed, even 10-team mixed. I've seen some home leagues because nobody or not not a lot of guys anymore want to have the uh, you know third catcher on the farm team in Oklahoma City on their radar because who needs to put that much effort into it, frankly. And uh, I suspect that your approach is probably pretty helpful to people who, are, who aren't playing online leagues at all, but are playing their uh, home leagues with their buddies or guys they went to school with or whatever. Yeah, I, I really appreciate that. Now, I think with my content, if you're playing strictly high stakes, you know, your weekly changes, I don't know that I'm going to be doing so much for you there. I'll be honest with you. A lot of my content is the most added and dropped players on a given day, Recapping the previous night's performances, I try and give some pitching streaming advice, but it is definitely more focused to the the everyday daily changes player. So if you are one of those guys in you know the NFBC Platinum Leagues and the main events, I hope you still listen, but I don't know that my content is necessarily geared towards you, unfortunately. In the podcasts of yours that I've listened to, it's just been you going through the list of drops and ads and guys you should add and guys you probably shouldn't add and those kind of uh, pieces of advice. Do you get guests as well? Yeah, I typically have one guest per week. Uh, this week, I'm doing a couple of appearances on your show and a couple of other things. So I'm taking the week off from bringing people onto my show. But typically, yeah, one day, uh, usually earlier in the week, I try and bring on uh, somebody from the fantasy baseball industry just to uh, just to chat for a while. We'll have to definitely get you on uh, before the season is over. Yeah, please do. That'd be a lot of fun. Uh, you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick Davitt with Joe Rico from SportsEthos.com and Fantasy MLB Today podcast. And Joe, you play fantasy baseball yourself, of course. You mentioned playing uh, or being interested in the Yahoo and ESPN type leagues, but what formats are you playing this year? Which ones do you prefer? Um, well, the ones that I prefer are pretty much the stuff that I make content about, your, your daily change leagues. I'm a very active fantasy player. I'm always going through the waiver wire, looking at trends. So I'm not really one for weekly settings. I do play in a couple of leagues like that, but most of what I do is 10, 12, and 15-team uh, standard 5 by 5 head-to-head uh, category leagues. Those are my 
bread and butter. I do play some points leagues. I do play some roto across different formats. But my favorite personally is head to head. Every Sunday is like a little playoff series, and I find it's a little more entertaining on the whole than roto is. I find roto can be a little stale throughout the season. That might be just me, but I, I prefer head to head. Yeah, one of the disadvantages of playing Roto, I I only play Rotisserie and have done for a couple of years uh, now. And the problem is in my team, uh, the Tout American League only, I'm sixth to ninth kind of. That's the range that I'm going to finish in, I know. And there's not a heck of a lot I can do about it because it's, as you get further into a year-long season, the the positions get stratified pretty solidly and it's pretty hard to imagine yourself making up, you know, 40 points in the standings in four weeks. It's, it's pretty unlikely to happen. So I think I'm going to start looking at those kind of head to head leagues where there's a bit more of a luck element in it. There's a bit more of a week to week planning element in it. Cause it just seems like it might be fun to have that extra angle on it. As you suggest, uh, how many fantasy teams do you have this season? I have eight teams this season. How are you doing? Five of them are in a very good spot. Two of them are fringe playoff teams, and one of them is essentially uh, I'm not really so focused there anymore. I've pretty much been out of the running for most of the year. Poor draft. Uh, Walker Bueller is a, is definitely a, a, a main line there on my poor teams. But for the whole, uh, it's been a fairly successful season for me, i got to say. It's been a pretty good year. Well, you mentioned Walker Bueller is something of a common denominator on the struggling team. Uh, what are the common denominators among your successful teams? Who do you have on there that seems to be uh, on, a, on a number of teams and really helping out across the board? Somebody that I heavily invested in this year was Francisco Lindor. I was seeing what he did last year, first year in the New York media spotlight. Granted, it's the Mets, not the Yankees, but it's still New York. Coming from a place of Cleveland where, you know, it's really a, a total, total different situation for him. So I was expecting him to struggle maybe a little bit. Last season was very poor, but he was a first-round draft pick last season, and this year he was falling into the fourth and fifth round. So where I could get him there around pick 50, I was I have him in, I think, about half of my leagues, and in those leagues, uh, been very successful. And on the pitching side, it's been Zach Gallen. I have Zach Gallen on a lot of teams that I picked him, I think, around pick 150 or so. He was more of an afterthought. And he has really bounced back as well. So Zach Allen and Francisco Lindor are definitely uh, common denominators there on the successful teams. As we head into the stretch, Joe, what do you think is the most effective thing fantasy managers can do to help their teams get towards that finish line? It's just to pay attention for me, really. Uh, you see a lot of teams, and I've seen in the last few days, people talking about there's been high stakes leagues where people haven't logged in since June kind of thing. I don't understand that personally. Like I said, I'm a very active fantasy player, and I think the best way to do it is just to keep absorbing content and keep you know, looking at trends as the season goes on here. A lot of people start to focus on football and basketball, and maybe they head back to school and their students. Whatever the case may be, people are less focused this time of year. If you keep the blinders on and you stay eyes on the prize, looking at the top pickups, the best two-start pitchers available, you should have an advantage on your on your league mates just by the fact of paying attention and opening the app every day. I think that's correct, and I'll say something else about it that I've mentioned here on Baseball HQ Radio before. When we were discussing, uh, I forget who I was talking about it with, but we were discussing why you should keep trying even if you have, you have no chance of getting to the top or even getting into the money. And what I've said all along is if you know how to make up points to go from ninth to seventh or from seventh to fifth, at some point that knowledge is going to 
help you go from third to first because it's all the same, really. You're just looking at the categories or looking at your situation, looking at the possibilities on your roster and trying to get better no matter where you're starting from because at some point, like I said, in your future, you're going to help yourself win or make the money or, or do especially well. And I think that's the dividend that pays off maybe not in the year you're in but in the year coming down the road that you don't even know about yet. Yeah, no, I'm already starting to think about where I want to be drafting players for next season. And granted, there are different levels of fantasy players. Some people, they log in a couple times a week, they set their lineups, and they just are more casual about it. But if you're really serious, if you're trying to make money, if you're looking at trends already for next season, thinking about players you want to be fading, thinking about guys who will be falling in drafts that you can have an advantage of if you draft early, uh, there's a lot of things you can do, like you said, to really help yourself in the long run, not just over these last few weeks. I know some people believe, Joe, that teams that are out of the running, completely out of the running, no chance whatsoever, shouldn't really be making moves and especially not making trades because they might affect the outcome of the race. What's your take on that? I am, I'm more of the opinion that if you paid your league fees, you can do what you like with your team. But at the same time, if you've been inactive for the entire season and then somebody offers you a trade, which is clearly an unfair trade. And because you've been zoned out and you're not really paying attention, maybe you log in, you accept this crazy uh, unbalanced trade. You might, you might end up ruining uh, part of the league there because of your inactivity and then doing something like that. Like that would be one of the few situations where I'd say I'm not on board with that. If you're going to be in the league, be in the league. If you're not, then just try not to be involved in it. If you are going to be doing that in and out kind of thing, that's where people start to get a little bit upset. And I try to avoid doing that. But at the end of the day, if you paid your league fees, uh, you can do what you like. Yeah, I was thinking more of situations where not so much that a guy has zoned out, but where you get a third place team trading with a ninth place team and they both benefit from the trade. Legitimately, both teams go up. The guy from ninth goes into sixth. The guy from third goes into first. And I've been in situations where you do that and there's a big uh, hue and cry and uproar because somebody always says, I see why the third place team does it. He gets to go up to first place. But the ninth place guy, all he gets to do is go up to seventh and he's, he's changing the outcome of the overall race and he's not really benefiting from it. I don't buy it because I think you go from ninth to seventh. That is a benefit. You did better. But uh, how, how do you think about situations where the trade can be justified, but there's a huge gap or a huge uh, difference in the impact on the overall league? I think that if you look at it the way it mirrors to Major League Baseball, that happens all the time where there might be a trade that skews things out of balance. And why is a, a non-contender trading pieces to a contender? It's just a part of the game, and I think that fantasy baseball should try and mirror the actual game as much as possible. So you will see in real baseball teams that are completely out of the race, a la the Washington Nationals this season, trading a bunch of pieces to a team that is in the race. And now if that happened in a fantasy context, like you said, people might be upset. But I really think that that is just a part of the game, and we should try and make the sport, the fantasy version of the sport, as close to the actual version as well. And I, I probably will be in the minority there, but I think if you pay to be in the league, you can you can do what you like. And even if it makes other people unhappy, you might not be invited back to the league the following season. But I think at the end of the day, uh, you ha- you have the right to do what you want with your roster. Yeah, I agree. Uh, Joe, it's been really interesting so far. Uh, I know that you are really specializing in talking about players on your podcast and in your writing, looking at weekly guys whose stock has risen and fallen and those kinds of things. So I'd like to get into that in detail. Right now, I'm going to take a quick break, though. Uh, We'll come back in part two, and we'll finish this discussion. How's that sound?
That sounds fantastic, Patrick. Joe Arrico writes for SportsEthos.com and hosts the Fantasy MLB Today podcast. He'll be back a little later in the show, but coming up, we have our Market Watch player news reports. Nick has the National League news. Ray has the American League next on Baseball HQ Radio. Right now, though, it's time in the show when I get to let you know about an item of the great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. It's our buyer's guide. In the starting pitcher guide, columnist Stephen Nickrand looks at base performance value platoon splits in 2022. And in the relief pitcher's buyer's guide, columnist Doug Dennis looks at strikeout minus walk percentage skills among relievers. The buyer's guides are just part of the great resources available all the time when you're a member of the team at BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our Market Watch player news reports. Ray Murphy is on deck with the American League report. And leading off, it's our National League news and our old friend, Baseball HQ pitcher matchups analyst Harold Nichols. Nick, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Patrick. Let's start in Philadelphia where they had some good news. Uh, Bryce Harper, all-star outfielder, has begun a rehab assignment at AAA Lehigh Valley. Phil Hertz covering the story for playing time today. Bryce Harper's return to the big leagues is imminent. What do we know? Bryce Harper is expected back today. Rehab could not have gone much better. Five for eight, two homers, two doubles, six RBIs, three runs. So time to get him back in your lineups. Looks like the playing time loser is going to be Derek Hall, who I think we talked about him a couple of weeks ago. He came out looking pretty good and sort of slowed down, and now he's back in AAA until the rosters expand in September, it looks like. Yep, that's what it looks like at this point. So uh, anyway, all of those players who've been missing Bryce Harper, which includes me, and (laughs) would be certainly glad to have him back. Staying in Philadelphia, there's good news with Bryce Harper, bad news with Zach Wheeler, their ace. He's on the IL. He has right forearm tendonitis, which sounds bad because anything to do with forearms and lower arms, uh, you immediately start thinking elbows and Tommy John, but they say it's not all that serious. Yeah, They, they don't think it's all that serious. Uh, uh, Wheeler says he's he, he would be good to go, but they've uh, put him on the IL to kind of calm things down. Bailey Falter will get the start tonight. Wheeler had a, had a great stretch between April 28th and August 9th, the 1.97 ERA. And then the last two starts, both losses to the Mets, he gave up 10 earned runs, 14 hits in 11 and a third innings. So he, he said he felt good after both of those, but but uh, you never know. Wheeler's a, a real gamer and, and wanted to stay in there, but at this point, they're being cautious about it. It's an interesting thing, isn't it, that these ball players they want to stay out there and play even when it's not in their best health interests. So they're just, as you said, Zach Wheeler's a gamer. He wants to get out there and help the team and all that kind of stuff. But the team has probably wisely said, you know, take a couple of day starts off and figure things out. But uh, I noticed in a story about it that I read, I think on MLB.com, that uh, general manager David Dombrowski said they're not even giving him an MRI. They know exactly what's going on here. It's not serious. But what they're trying to do is tamp it down so it doesn't get out of control. Right, that's what that's what they're saying, and hopefully that's that's the case. And Wheeler will be back out there uh, as soon as his time on the aisle is finished, which will be 15 days, of course, for pitchers. Uh, Philadelphia also some bad news in the bullpen. They put uh, Sir Anthony Dominguez on the IL. He has soreness in the triceps. Uh, Phillies also moved Corey Knebel to the 60-day IL. He's done for the year. Phil Hurts covering all of the situation in Philadelphia. What goes on in their bullpen now? Well, at this point, we have uh, it's not clear how long Dominguez will be out, but we've moved the bulk of the saves uh, to David Robertson. 
Uh, we've got now have him with 75% of the saves and the rest spread among a number of relievers uh, in the pen. Of course, Knebel started the uh, started the season as a closer. He's now finished for 2022. Uh, and the, the Phillies added Tyler Sir, who had a 2.50 ERA over 36 innings at AAA Lehigh Valley. Uh, using the ninth inning of their 10-9 loss to the Mets on August 21st. Gave up a homer, a double, before recording the third out of the inning. What an inauspicious debut, I think they call that. <laughs> you go out there in yeah. a tight game and give up a homer and a double. Uh, nice start. He's got a probably a limited window here to impress people before he gets uh, shipped back to Lehigh Valley and uh, back to AAA to figure things out. More bad news on the pitching front, and this is really quite unfortunate uh, for Dodgers fans, for Walker Bueller's fantasy managers. He underwent Tommy John surgery on Tuesday, which means he'll miss all of next year in all likelihood, or maybe come back at the very end. Yes, yeah, so reportedly no surprises with the surgery, which is good. Uh, apparently went as well as could be hoped for. But you have to remember, this is his second Tommy John surgery. Uh, that makes him a real risk going into 2024. Uh, it's, it's, you really have to worry about his ability to return, uh, at, at this point with us, with two Tommy John surgeries and such a fairly young, young ball player. It has happened before. I, I'm racking my brain trying to think of, there was a pitcher who had two and came back and pitched pretty well, but of course this creates a bit of roiling at the top of the uh, rotation in Los Angeles, but luckily for them, uh, we talked about this a week or two ago, Dustin May is on the way back. So maybe there's a, an obvious choice for somebody to replace Walker Bueller as the Dodgers gear up for their playoff run. Yeah, I think so. I mean, Dustin May is obviously someone that they're, uh, they're looking to, and hopefully, hopefully will be pitching very well for them for the rest of the season. So it would be good to have him back. Uh, but of course, Walker Bueller is a real loss. So the rotation shapes up as uh, Julio Urias, Tony Gonsolin, who just won his 16th game. He's 16 and one this year. Can you imagine that? Uh, Andrew Heaney came back from injury a little while back. Tyler Anderson has been pitching really well, a bit of a surprise this year. And then Dustin May, of course. And the, for me, the worry, if I'm a Dodgers fan or if I have these guys on my fantasy rosters, are Heaney and Anderson, because Anderson appears to be way out over his skis skill-wise. His 7.1 strikeout per nine dominance rate is not elite, although his walk rate is under two, which is pretty good. And it's contributing to a 102 whip, and his ERA is 273, but his expected ERA, Nick, is 403. So Tyler Anderson seems to be out-pitching his peripherals, and that doesn't mean that things are going to change. Anything can happen in a short run, but... Tyler Anderson, if your league is still doing trades and somebody offers Tyler Anderson, I'd be a little bit sketchy and, and be careful about making any offer to acquire Tyler Anderson at this stage, and I'd certainly probably be more willing to offer him up and trade him away from my roster. Yeah, I think that would make good sense at this point. If you if you need something, Tyler Anderson might look like a good uh, a good get for someone else, and uh, as you said, that, uh, that XERA suggests that uh, he's outpitching his skills at the moment. In Milwaukee, they got some good news. They recalled pitcher Adrian Hauser. He started Wednesday of this week. Uh, what what happened, and what does it look like for Adrian Hauser going forward? Well, Adrian Hauser gave the, gave the uh, Brewers back his uh, his opening day their opening day rotation. It was not, however, an auspicious an auspicious start. Uh, two and a third innings, five hits, five earned runs, four walks, four strikeouts. But that he did come against the Dodgers in L.A. So we might have to dismiss that just a little bit uh, and, and note that he had very stiff competition 
Uh, so I guess we'll have to wait and see if Hauser is, is all the way back, but uh, certainly good news for them to have him back in, in the rotation. In playing time today, uh, Tom Kephart noted that Hauser struggles with control and command and a second straight season of declining velocity have given him some pretty overall pedestrian statistical performance this year. And I think the the smart play here is to expect that Adrian Hauser is going to be a medium sort of level starter, not any kind of starter that you can really count on. Yeah, I think so. Even before the injury, he had a very, a very mediocre season, 5.15 ERA, 4.63 XERA, only a 43 BPV. So as you, as, as you said, certainly not someone you really want to count on at this point in the season. In Washington, the Nationals activated Eric Fetty from the IL and recalled Riley Adams. Uh, Phil Hertz covers the Nationals for playing time today. They also demoted catcher Trey Barrera and designated Tyler Clippard for assignment. Boy, there's a name from the past. Tyler Clippard, of course, uh, was a pretty useful pitcher for many years in fantasy baseball. Not so much anymore, but what's the story with Eric Fetty? Fetty missed a month with shoulder inflammation. Before then, his performance was... was uh like like uh, Hauser, less than scintillating, 5.03 XCRA, 20 BPV, uh, four quality starts in 19 starts. Uh, nevertheless, he's expected to take regular turns for the Nationals now. We bumped his projected playing time to 9.5%. Uh, Adams and Barrera trade roles, so we've moved a bit of the catching playing time from Barrera to Adams. Uh, Clipper barely pitched for Washington, making only four appearances over the past month. Might latch on somewhere, but his value to fantasy managers is, as you said, a name from the past. Washington's also going to start uh, right-hander Cade Cavalli tonight. Uh, Cade Cavalli scheduled to start tonight, entered 2022 as Washington's top prospect with a 9D rating, uh, more recently ranked uh, number 42 on uh, Baseball HQ's midseason top 50 list. Over 20 starts at AAA Rochester, Cavalli has a 3.71 ERA, 104 strikeouts, 39 walks, over 97 innings. Uh, over his last seven starts, he's allowed only six earned runs, over 36.2 innings pitched. Expected to get uh, be part of the Washington rotation going forward. So uh, keep an eye on Kate on how his start goes tonight. Kate Cavalli is probably out there in most leagues and maybe someone worth picking up. At this point, we bumped him up to 7% of projected playing time. And of course, our baseball HQ analyst, Nick, will be adjusting Cade Cavalli's numbers on the projection side as they get a little bit more of a look at him. The stats that you mentioned sounded pretty interesting, but one of them kind of jumped out at me, Nick. You mentioned that over his last seven starts, he has only six earned runs, and that sounds pretty good, but he's only thrown 36 innings over the seven starts, which means even at AAA, he's barely getting through five innings, and Major League Baseball is harder. Do you think this poses a threat to his ability to gather wins? And on Washington, not that many wins to be had anyway, but if he's only getting five innings per start, in AAA, might he be down to like four innings, three and a third in his starts at the major league level? It seems to mitigate against uh, speculating on him, but then again, he's a very highly rated prospect, so who knows? Yeah, it's hard to tell. You know, if you don't know why they were why they were doing that, why they were keeping him in there such a short, really such a short time. Uh, but as you said, wins are going to be hard to come by in Washington anyway, and so certainly if you're looking for wins, Cavalli is probably not someone to look at. Uh, maybe. Uh, Better with strikeouts and ERA, and uh, hopefully, hopefully, whip in, in those uh, in that situation. I think maybe I'm going to go to the uh, milb.com website and check the pitch counts in those five inning starts because if he's 
throwing barely five innings and getting up to 90 pitches, I think that's a mark of concern. But if he's getting five innings and he's throwing 60 pitches, then all of a sudden you think, well, what they're doing here is they're babying him along and making sure that he doesn't face any workload issues, which would be a very positive sign for me. Uh, Let's go to San Francisco. It seems like every other week we're talking about Brandon Belt on and off the IL. He's back on it. And uh, the Giants have recalled outfielder Bryce Johnson, Jake Crumpler covering this story. Poor Brandon Belt. He just can't ever seem to get anything rolling. Yeah, so far this season, Brandon Belt's had a hard time actually staying on the field. Right knee inflammation will send him back to the IL. Uh, at this point, a career low batting average of 213, over 298 plate appearances, just eight home runs. Uh, not not been doing well at all this year. He'll lose some playing time, but from our projections, but we'll maintain the majority of it until we know how severe this injury really is. Uh, Johnson has appeared in four major league games earlier this year, known for his glove more than his bat. It will act as a fifth outfielder and we'll only see a very slight bump in playing time at the moment. Brandon Belt's uh, weighted runs created plus 100 is league average. He's at a career worst 96, so he's actually sub-replacement level if you're looking at weighted runs created plus. And uh, it's a pretty good stat for that kind of thing. So it's a, a sad story for Brandon Belt. And at this point, gosh, I'm very concerned for him as far as his major league career. But as far as next year's drafts, Brandon Belt's going to maybe not be drafted at this point. Yes, very, very definitely. That would seem seem to drop him way down the draft list and might make him a bargain. If he, if he comes back as he has sometimes in the past, uh, might be a bargain for a couple of months if he can stay on the field that long. That's the that's always the balance, Nick, isn't it? That uh, a guy struggles or has injuries or starts to get a little older and his numbers start falling off and then he drops down the list to the point where at, at a certain point he becomes a bargain. And you have to kind of throw, throw some money on the line on Brandon Belt next year maybe. But of course, that all depends on your league format, your rostering rules and your plan and all that kind of stuff. Uh, in Cincinnati, Nick, uh, we talked favorably about right-hander Graham Ashcraft, who came up and looked pretty good on the mound as a starter there, but bad news for him. He's on the 15-day IL. He has soreness in his biceps, another one of those injuries that often presages elbow trouble. They recalled right-hander TJ Zoik from AAA. Uh, Tom Kephart covers the Reds for playing time today. What's the story with Graham Ashcraft? Well, reports indicated that Ashcraft was approaching his season's inning limit before being placed on the IL. So that really clouds any any assessment of a 2022 return. If I were the Reds, I'd be very cautious about letting him come back if he was getting near that inning limit that they had placed on him. Azoic made two recent unimpressive starts, which he was hammered by opposing batters before returning to AAA. He now gets another opportunity as a Cincinnati starter. Uh, Ashcraft has shown impressive velocity, a strong ground ball tilt, since his May promotion, uh, he has yet to translate his high velocity into consistently swinging strike rate and, and dominance. But uh, certainly uh, Ashcraft is someone to keep on your radar, even if he is perhaps finished for this season. Yeah, I bet he is finished for this season. Certainly Cincinnati doesn't have a lot of reason to bring him back. They might just to maybe sell tickets at the end of the season or something like that. But uh, I think Ashcraft's going to be one of those guys who's going to be a subject of wide disagreement, shall we say, when next year's draft um, cheat sheets start coming out. There's going to be some scouts and analysts who really like Graham Ashcraft, and there's going to be others who note the fact that he has impressive velocity that is not turning into strikes and uh, are perhaps a bit more bearish on him. And finally, the playing time tomorrow space at baseballhq.com, Nick, uh, is a place where our team analysts really dig into the teams that they cover 
uh, division by division. And Dan Marcus covers the National League Central. Speaking of Cincinnati, they really paved a path for Jose Barrero to come to the major leagues and, and have a real good shot at taking over at shortstop. He's a top prospect at that position. They moved Kyle Farmer out of the way to third base. But before a rest day on Sunday, Barrero had started 15 straight games at shortstop, and the results have been not impressive, a little concerning. And now Dan Marcus says in playing time tomorrow, Barrero might be running out of time. The problem has been making contact. Only a 49% contact rate, some positive in the profile, a 109 power index, a 147 speed. But if you can't get on base, if you can't make contact, there's not, not a whole lot you can do. His time in the majors has been brief. The strikeout problems appear to have been uh, ingrained at some point because uh, consistently struck out at a rate in the low 20s throughout most of his time in the minors, struck out at a 37.5% clip at AAA this season. Uh, that was likely a major factor in delaying his promotion to Cincinnati. Uh, and if that, unless he can fix that, this is a guy whose, whose career could get derailed. Just a month ago, we might have gone on to say there are a few other players ready to compete at the big league level to displace him. But that changed the trade deadline when the Reds acquired Spencer Steer. Steer has spent the entire season at AAA, tallying 301 plate appearances before between two organizations, struck out just under a 20% clip uh, in clear contrast to Barrero. Heading into the season, Steer was given a 7C prospect grade with an upward arrow, noted as having a slight frame but makes the most of it with his plate discipline and pitch selection to maximize his ability to drive balls. So unless Barrero can turn things around quickly, wouldn't be a surprise to see Steer get a chance in Cincinnati prior to the close of the season. And since that was written, Barrero has gone one for his last, let's see, one for his last 7, 12, 13, uh, and has compiled seven strikeouts in that, in that period of time. And that certainly fits right in. You mentioned a 49% contact rate using the BaseballHQ.com metric, and that metric is at-bats minus strikeouts over total at-bats. And it's uh, because it's at-bats, it kind of you kind of lose a little touch on the what's going on with the rest of it. But if you just look at his plate appearances and say how many times has he struck out, the answer is 50% half of his plate appearances end up in strikeouts and only 3% of them end up in walks. And that kind of lack of plate discipline, Nick, it seems to me that every pitcher in Major League Baseball is going to get a scouting report that says, whatever you do, don't throw this guy a strike. You know, throw everything off the plate because he'll wail away at it and you'll get some easy outs. And if he can't correct that, it's such a major flaw in a in a batting profile that uh, Jose Barrero could really be in trouble as a prospect or as a future major leaguer. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if, if you can't, if you're going to strike out that much, and as you said, the scouting reports are clearly out there telling the pitchers not to put anything in the, in the center of the plate for him that, uh, you know, he, he's going to have a very, very difficult time uh, accomplishing anything in major league baseball. And the other side of that coin, when you look at the baseball savant uh, statcast metrics, is because he's making contact only when he kind of reaches for something and he's hitting it out of the zone, his barrel rate is really low. The major league average on barrels per plate appearance is 
around five, a little less, and he's around two and a half. So he's only barreling at half the major league rate. And if you think if you think that the major league average rate consists of a bunch of guys who are above average and a bunch of guys who are below average, this puts Jose Barrero squarely in the side of the really well below average. And that, as I said, it really has to be a concern. He's swinging and missing and everybody knows it. So he's having to make weak contact at best and his batting average ends up being, what is it? It's not even 200. I think it's uh, somewhere around uh, 190 or something like that. So yeah, a lot of trouble here for Jose Barrero. Right. Yeah, very definitely. A minus 86 BPV if that number uh, number resonates at all. It does. I mean, that, that's just awful. Yeah, it, uh, it resonates and, like uh, a like a like a wooden stick hitting a garbage can. <laughs> right. Absolutely. <laughs> so, and and, then, and of course now the problem is for Barrero is they picked up someone at the trade deadline who could easily displace him uh, down down the road in terms of the Cincinnati roster. And the fact, Nick, that they actually not only uh, you mentioned Spencer Steer, but they picked up two other pretty highly rated shortstops in their various trades over the uh, trading deadline and it seems to indicate that they're not super confident that Jose Barrero is going to be their future answer at shortstop if the if their actions at the trading deadline are let's go and get a whole bunch of shortstops. And I understand that shortstops are good athletes and you can move them around and I remember in talking about this here on Baseball HQ Radio with prospect guys and and um, other analysts they were saying that you know a lot of times what teams will do is they'll get shortstops in trade because eventually they know they're going to move them to third or to second or to the outfield or somewhere they want the bat and if you can play shortstop you can play pretty much anywhere defensively that said you have an opportunity to fix your team up and prepare it for the future. And your first priority is to get three shortstops. Doesn't say a lot for the shortstops you already have. No, it really doesn't. Not at all. All right, Nick, I appreciate you taking the time. We're into the stretch now. How are your teams doing? Uh, I've got a team that is hovering uh, into between, uh, between fourth and eighth place with, with about two points separating all of those teams right in that area. So it's, uh, it'll be good for, for my team to have uh, Bryce Harper back. That could make a real difference. Oh boy, can it ever. It's, it's like one of those things that we used to say about, uh, trying to pick up guys at the trading deadline. Sometimes you don't have to because just getting a, a Bryce Harper back from the IL is like adding a player of great consequence at no cost to yourself. Right. Very definitely. So I, I'm hopeful that I'll start to move up the standings over the next few games as, uh, as Harper gets his at-bats. What do you think the ceiling is for that team? I, I think probably, probably third, uh, fourth, somewhere in that, in that area at this point. I've had too many injuries and, and uh, too many guys out at, at, at first, so that's been the problem. Uh, but, but in a keeper league, not guys you want to get rid of, so you know, that's the other issue. Indeed, uh, been there, done that, uh, came out the other side, and you keep smiling and hope that things work out. Thanks, Nick. Appreciate it. Talk to you next week. Thank you, Patrick. Harold Nichols is a pitcher matchups analyst at BaseballHQ.com and covers the National League for us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Over we go to the American League and BaseballHQ.com columnist and co-general manager, Ray Murphy. Ray, welcome back to the show. Glad to be here, Patrick. Let's start in Houston. They put closer Ryan Presley on the 15-day IL, uh, retroactive to Monday of this week. He has neck spasms. Jock Thompson covering the story for playing time today. And of course, any time a closer goes on the IL, it's news. But when it's a closer on a powerhouse team like the Astros, it's big news. So first, how long do we think Presley is likely to be out of action? 
Yeah, I think the news isn't terrible here, but I'm a little bit cautious about it as a Presley owner in a few leagues. Uh, the early estimates was that he would be on the short end of the IL time that back in early September, I think he's eligible around September 6th after the backdating of the DL goes on. Um, so basically he'd be missing the rest of this week and all of next week. Um, so he'd be back on Labor Day for a, uh, I guess that's a uh, six game week starting with Baltimore, if I read the schedule correctly. Uh, but he could miss more than that. And I'm mindful of the time he missed earlier this season in April and May, they were a little cautious bringing him back. And given the, uh, you know, as we often allude to when talking about the Astros, Yankees, Dodgers, et cetera, given the uh, the playoff race situation and, and that Houston is pretty secure in the, in the top two seeds there, I think they're going to be predisposed to giving Presley a couple of extra days if that's what he needs. So I think that 9-6 is probably the best case scenario, and it might be worse than that. I was thinking about it, and neck spasms doesn't sound like something that would be chronic or anything to worry about as if it were a elbow or a shoulder or even a hand injury, something like that, or knees. Neck spasms just seems like something that you get and it goes away if you just leave it alone for a while. But I don't know, maybe he's one of those guys whose head jerks every time he throws a pitch, and after a while his body says, okay, enough with the jerking of the neck. Take it easy. In the meantime, who steps up to what should be a pretty decent number of save chances? Yeah, the save chances should be flowing here, and the Astros have no shortage of options. I, I think the conversation starts with Rafael Montero, if only because he picked up the first save opportunity on Thursday night. That was his eighth of the year, so clearly uh, they've tapped him a few times along the way. Uh, but they have other options. There's, you know, and, and there are some guys who come with the, you know, the vaunted proven closer label in Hector Neris, uh, and of course Will Smith. Uh, formerly of the Braves, is the new acquisition here. He was not in this picture uh, when Presley was out in April and May, so we'll have to see how Dusty Baker wants to mix him into this. And then there's still Ryan Stanek and Brian Abreu, who uh, who also got a save earlier this week filling in for Presley. So you know, B Baker's got a lot of places he can go, but I, I think Montero and Smith are probably the, uh, the the fab guys I'd be looking at this weekend if I were so inclined. Houston also moved Christian Javier from the rotation to the bullpen in a move they called temporary and probably going to be multi-inning high leverage role, maybe take some pressure off the bullpen. Yeah, I think that's probably right. I, you know, I think it's just a situation where there were a couple of off days that they can, uh, you know, j jigger the rotation and not do that. It might be, uh, it's a chance to manage innings for Javier. And I think it's also, you know, I think there's also a decent chance you know, again, getting back to lining things up for the playoffs, that that's the kind of role, the multi-inning reliever role that you might see Javier in in October. So it's a chance to give him a couple of stints, uh, you know, getting ready in the middle of the game and that sort of thing. So I, I assume that's what's going on there. Little dress rehearsal kind of action. More bad news for Houston, who learned that infield outfield uh, utility guy Aledmus Diaz is now expected to miss a couple more weeks than they thought. He has a groin injury, and outfielder Chaz McCormick has dislocated a pinky finger. He did that on Wednesday night, so all of a sudden there's a bit of a crisis going on for Houston in their outfield situation. Yeah, that's too bad in both cases, because Diaz especially, but also McCormick had been playing pretty well and playing a lot lately, so... You know, they had both been some uh, sneaky sources of uh, fantasy value in the last 
four or six weeks, and it's uh, it's always tough when you see the see them get derailed when uh, when when they're actually returning value. Uh, so in this case, it's probably more Jake Myers, uh, especially filling in for McCormick in the outfield, and Mauricio Dubon probably steps into that more Diaz-like infield outfield utility role. And McCormick, at least as you say, with a, a broken or fractured pinky, is uh, you know, that's probably not a 10-day injury. That's probably longer than that. So uh, the, the the window for Myers in particular is probably open a good uh, a good amount and a good ways into September here. I've never thought of either Jake Myers or Mauricio Dubon being a fantasy asset, except in the very uh, deepest of leagues. I have Dubon on my American League only Tout Wars roster, but it's not because I like the idea of Mauricio Dubon. It's just in leagues like that, that's sometimes the only choice you have. And Houston has never been shy about promoting their prospects, even uh, though the prospects' time clocks are starting and all of that kind of stuff. Remember, Jordan Alvarez was called up uh, pretty abruptly when he came up because they figured, hey, we need a guy, he can hit. And I wonder if there's any interesting prospects that the Houston might be looking at. Yeah, this is the right time of year to be asking that question because, you know, with a couple of roster spots, they can make a move now or obviously on September 1st, there could be a call up there who, um, you know, comes up and, you know, picks up some playing time. What One guy to maybe watch in that sense is Justin Durden, who's been uh, smacking the ball in AAA, not a highly rated prospect, didn't appear on our preseason top 15 or anything like that, uh, but he's uh, crossed double in AAA this year. He's got an OPS over 1,000 slugging around 600 odd base percentage around 400 you know if they're worried that guys like dubon and myers are uh you know competent defenders but um offensive black holes in the at the bottom of the lineup then they could try something like Durden to to, to lengthen the lineup a little bit uh you know he's got some swing and miss in his game too but you know as, as you might expect from that near 400 on base percentage he is willing to take a walk uh, so, you know, that's one option. Another one that I know we've talked about um, earlier in the year was Pedro Leon, but, um, you know, who's got both infield and outfield versatility and is sort of a toolsy guy who maybe could offer some stolen bases in September if he were to get an opportunity. But um, I think he's on the AAA IL with, uh, if I'm not mistaken, a broken nose. So that's probably a, uh, you know, he's probably got to get back from that first. So he'd be a post-September 1st, maybe more of a mid-September ad if you uh, if you catch that on a transaction wire. I heard it was a broken finger, and that puts me in mind of maybe he got both at the same time getting hit in the face while he was taking oh, care yeah. of business. Oh, you, you could be right, um, but he is either way, he is on the shelf. He is, and uh, gosh, a real stolen base guy, 32 stolen bases. In AAA this year, 400 plate appearances or so, so it would have been pretty interesting to see him come up because they run, too. It would have been a real interesting guy. But actually, Durden's, I think, got 10 stolen bases or something like that in the two levels of the minors this year, so he's not like a big slugger who's going to just clog up the bases. Apparently, he can move pretty well. Yeah, you're right. You know, a lot of that, you know, as Ed DeCaria in our research department says, it's the... uh, it's the skill to steal and the will to steal and the uh, 
the, the Astros collectively have the will, like every, pretty much everybody except Jordan has a couple of bags on that team, right? I think they do. Yeah. And they're, they've always been pretty willing. Uh, Dusty Baker, a fairly aggressive manager, likes to get things going. And uh, I'm going to be looking at this Durden guy pretty closely. And depending on how my uh, leagues shape up and how much fab I have, I might throw a dollar here and, and cross my fingers because I could use a, a bunch of home runs on a good team, especially. Uh, let's go to New York. The Yankees activated outfielder Giancarlo Stanton and optioned outfielder Estevan Florial. Uh, Stanton started Thursday in Oakland, three RBIs right in the middle of the order, just what we would expect. But what happens with Florial? Yeah, it's a, a, I don't want to say it's a stunning fall for Florial, but there, there were about, I don't know, 20 or 25 minutes there where it looked like he might really be getting a, an opportunity to be the center fielder in New York, at least while they were waiting for uh, trade deadline acquisition Harrison Bader to get back in the lineup. And I think he's on a, he's on a mid-September timetable. But, uh, you know, Florio wound up only getting uh, 10 plate appearances. I think he went one for nine with four Ks. Uh, and now he's back in AAA you know, waiting for his next opportunity, which, you know, again, might come as part of a September call-up reinforcement. But, uh, you know, certainly if the, if the window was cracked for him, he was unable to pry it open further. Aaron Hicks has uh, been missing some time lately as well. Uh, so it seems like the configuration the Yankees have been going with lately is Aaron Judge at center field. And then either one of their converted infielders, Marlon Gonzalez, or the recent call-up Oswaldo Cabrera, who I, I, every time I turn on uh, MLB Network, he's throwing somebody out at home plate from right field. I think that's happened a couple of times this week. Um, but those guys are playing right. Judge is playing center. Stanton, of course, is nowhere to be found in the outfield. Uh, they're going to be careful with his uh, with him coming off of that Achilles injury, and I think he's going to be limited to DH DH work. So that's uh, that's how they're arranging the outfield at the moment. And uh, Florial is. Uh, OPS plus as recorded at baseballreference.com minus 43. And that's a score you don't often see in uh, OPS plus uh, is a minus. That's not easy to do. Yeah. <laughs> well, O 50 batting average, a one thirty six OBP, O 50 slugging, a one eighty six OPS. So, uh, <laughs> that's pretty bad. I mean, it's a very, very small, uh, sample as you suggested. I think he's got 22 plate appearances or something like that. It seems important that uh, Stanton is not going to be able to play the outfield, we don't think, which means he does have to play DH because the Yankees have been using that DH spot pretty extensively to give their regulars kind of those half days off. What are they going to do if Stanton is cluttering up the DH spot with all of those guys that they want to give a day off to here and there? Yeah, it's we can't really say the Yankees didn't miss Stanton because of course his absence corresponded with the lineup going sort of completely silent for the last few weeks, uh, much to the angst of Yankee fans. But uh, you know, what the Yankees were really doing with the DH spot at the time seemed like it should work out fine is that they were taking, of course, those five infielders they have and Donaldson, Connor Falepa, Torres, LeMahieu and Anthony Rizzo and kind of shuffling them through, the DH spot and the four infield spots, which seems like it should have been plenty productive. Of course, it wasn't working out that well. Uh, but they now lose the luxury to do that. And, you know, being the only true shortstop there, you think Kiner Falefa's playing time is sort of ironically probably the safest there. But among the other guys who are the ones who have the, the, the fantasy relevant bats, you know, your Donaldson, Rizzo, Torres, LeMahieu. Now I think one of those guys is going to be sitting almost every day. So uh, that's, 
you know, I, I don't think there's a clear loser there. I think it's really sort of a, you know, everybody gets a day off, Stanton gets a day off in there too. And, you know, all of those guys will probably end up sitting, you know, once a week or so as they, uh, you know, as the Yankees theme alert, uh, try to keep everybody fresh and healthy for the, uh, the, the impending postseason. And of course, you know, bring some, uh, bring some fire into that, you know, rather dormant lineup. The Yankees also acquired a right-hander Scott Efros right at the deadline, and it looked like he was kind of pushing his way into the save mix with uh, Clay Holmes, especially being on the IL and um, Aroldis Chapman come back and and not really be that effective. So all of a sudden, it looked like maybe Efros was going to grab a save or two. Now he's on the IL. He's got a shoulder problem, which doesn't sound good. Uh, Chris Olson covers the Yankees for playing time today. So with Holmes out and Efros out, What's going on in the bullpen? Yeah, boy, this has quickly become, you know, all, for all of the attention on the Yankees lineup issues that we were just talking about, the bullpen has really become one of the more fascinating bullpens around, uh, you know, especially for a team this good that turns up save opportunities. Um, two weeks ago, I think right after our last show, the, uh, the Yankees were in Boston and I was at one of those games and it was, one of the nights when Clay Holmes melted down right before he actually ended up on the IL. But for for the two games up here, uh, Chapman looked fantastic. Pitched two nights in a row, struck out like four out of the six guys he faced. I think the second night, even on the second night of the back-to-back, the uh, Boone went to him for four outs, which is something I had to go back and look at. And it was actually the first time that Boone had done that this year, which seemed like a pretty strong statement of confidence that hey, Aroldis Chapman is back, right? And it was great timing because it was right when Holmes turned into a pumpkin. So you thought Chapman would jump right into the job. However, then the next, <laughs> just when you thought things were stable in the Yankee bullpen, uh, you know, the next weekend down in Tampa, Chapman, you know, got four days off after the, looking great in Boston. And then he went to Tampa and uh, I think Tampa and Toronto and melted down twice in a row. He had two outings where, he walked four guys total. I, don't, I, don't, I think he only got one swinging strike across the two games. And suddenly it's like, okay, well, if you thought Chapman was back, you know, that guy, you know, made a, about a 10 minute appearance. And suddenly the, uh, you know, the beleaguered and this Chapman is the one we've got again. So all of that said, it, at that point, everything looked like it was pointing toward Efros, but now Efros goes on the DL with, with a shoulder problem. So what do the Yankees do? Aaron Boone is kind of, you know, you must love this PD. Um, Boone has kind of turned back to like a 1970s relief model. He's using his relievers the way that you would use, you know, you saw like Ken Tacoby or Goose Gossage or Dan Quisenberry get used. We saw Lou Trevino for like a seven out save the other night. And uh, then both Clark Schmidt and Lucas Lukey have also, uh, Clark Schmidt actually had a, a 10 out outing, I think, that ended up, uh, he ended up getting a win, but he got the last 10 outs of the game in one of the games against the Mets, which is among the more odd reliever usage patterns we've seen all year. And then um, Lucas Lukey did the same thing. It was a, more of a blowout situation last night against against Oakland. But um, Boone has kind of got to this mode where he's like, I've got a guy, I'm putting him in the seventh inning, and I'm leaving him out there, and we'll see what happens. And <laughs> it's great because it's right out of uh, you know Earl Weaver's book. 
it's an interesting way to run things, especially if he keeps going. But I know that the Baseball HQ analysts have given Trevino kind of a lead share of the save opportunities. Chapman's still on the list, although, man, I don't know why. And Jonathan Loezaga third, I think he picked up a... Uh, save or finished off a win earlier this week. So they have some options, but it will be way more interesting if they did what you're suggesting and started going with these very long relief outings to give those relievers the long saves. But of course, the downside of that is after a guy goes in there for three innings, he's not available for the next couple of days at least. And you have to start thinking, well, how much do I trust all of these guys to do that over and over again as we try to get this bullpen settled? Uh, A lot will be fixed or could be fixed when Holmes returns from injury. But as you head into the playoffs and the Yankees are likely to be the number one or two seed, you don't want to have your bullpen being a source of angst as you're trying to figure out how you're going to win the World Series, you don't. It's just something you don't want to have to worry about. You got other fish to fry. Yeah, that's exactly right. And there's a lot. There's a lot of talent in the Yankee bullpen at the moment. As we said, there's not a lot of health. But I think you're probably right. I, I'm sure what happened this week is mostly a function of you know cascading effects of once you use Trevino for the seven outs early in the week, and as you say, he's unavailable for a couple of days. So then. You know, that cascades your decisions the next night, the next night, et cetera. I'm sure once they get Trevino and Holmes and Efros back, they'll want to get them back to you know, more of one-inning roles, and we'll have to wait and see sort of what the, the pecking order is of those one-inning roles and who's working in the ninth. But if they get those guys back, and Lois Saigas really looks like he's, you know, he's been very good in past years, but it looks like he's still very much shaking off the rust right now. And I can't even begin to speculate what's wrong with, with Chapman. But there are, you know, there's a lot of talent there, and I think they're going to spend a good chunk of the next month or so before the playoffs just trying to get these guys into regular work every, you know, third day kind of thing. Let them get their inning in and try to get, you know, try to get something of a rhythm uh, to it as long as they, uh, as long as they hold on to one of those two top two playoff seeds. They can worry as much about the workloads as about the results. One of the things I do, Ray, when I'm getting ready for my weekly fab run uh, in the leagues that I'm in is I pull down the Baseball HQ expected value, the projected performance grids from uh, in Excel, and I look through them for guys who have pretty interesting dollar values attached to them, better than what I have on my roster. And one of the guys who kept popping up while I was doing this when I was looking for pitching was Ron Marinaccio. He kept turning up on our Baseball HQ projections as having $6, $7, $8 value for the rest of the season. I think that was based on, I think his ERA at the time is 160 or something. It's up to 170 now. Um, his ex-FIP and other ERA estimators are nowhere near that, but it looks like the Yankees, as you say, have a really deep and kind of offbeat bullpen here. Yeah, they have. You know, Boone, to his credit, has not done the, you know, shall we say, paint by number bullpen where they, you know, I think Joe Sheehan um, referenced in his newsletter this week talking about the about this, the, you know, the idea that a reliever knows at three thirty in the afternoon what time he's going to be pitching at night, right? Because if you're if you're the seventh inning guy, it's nine thirty. If you're the eighth inning guy, it's ten o'clock, et cetera. Uh, Boone is very much not stuck to that model. Uh, you know, Marinaccio is interesting. He's been very good, as you say. Um, and in fact, since uh, you know, I'm scanning his game log now, since uh, he's only given up six runs, six hundred runs all year, and five of them were in April. 
So since then, he's been, you know, he's been tremendously effective and, and mostly used by Boone for, you know, more than one inning opportunities, which of course is great for, uh, you know, maybe for wanting to catch a win or uh, certainly, uh, and because of that, he actually doesn't have that many holes. He's only got four holes because that's not really how he's used. He's used, you know, generally earlier in the game, but, um, you know, a lot of strikeouts and that good ERA, like you say. So that's been, uh, and, and, you know, coming into an early game that's in doubt in the fourth, fifth inning, in a, when the Yankee offense is clicking is a great way to, you know, come in when you're down three to two and leave when you're up six to three, right? So that's the, uh, that's kind of the value proposition there. Yeah, 30.3% strikeout rate, 12.3% walk rate, which is a little high. So he's an 18% strikeout minus walk. But an 080 whip and a 172 ERA, I just caution our listeners again that there might not be full skill support for this. But a guy like Marinaccio, there's some other guys in, in that situation. Wandy Peralta jumps to my mind and... Uh, um, Lutke, you mentioned, so that they have a lot of ways that they can go here. So it's going to be really interesting to watch. I wonder, however, Ray, if the net result is going to be, it's very difficult to figure out what to do from a fantasy perspective because they have all of these uh, irons that they can throw into the fire. Yeah, I think that's right. And like I said, I think Boone's priority in September is going to be to spread the work around and try to get as many people as he can on sort of the optimal glide path for October. Marinaccio's skills are really weird, though, like, as you were alluding to there. Uh, you know, one of the reasons there's not full skill support is that he's only got a uh, 15% hit rate, you know, a 150 BABIP, which is about half of, you know, what we would sort of expect it to be. But, but it's really, but the weird thing backing that up is his ground ball, line drive, fly ball split. He's got 42% grounders, 48% fly balls. And in this, with the ball we have this year, fly balls aren't necessarily a bad thing, right? But like they don't square them up. His line drive percentage is nine, which is about as low as I've seen anywhere this year. So uh, he somehow has, you know, at least in the 30 something inning small sample, he has the skill of avoiding the barrel of the bat, which, you know, is not something we directly measure, but obviously leads to good outcomes. Moving along, Ray, uh, shocking news out of Minnesota. They put outfielder Byron Buxton on the 10-day IL. Uh, this time he's got a hip injury. If we had one of those maps of the body, you could start coloring in all the parts, and pretty soon he'd be completely filled in, this poor guy. Uh, Rick Green covers the Twins for playing time today. What's the playing time effect of the latest departure of outfielder Byron Buxton? Yeah, you really, when you said shocking news, you really meant that, you know, shocked, not shocked meme, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I'm shocked. Shocked, I tell you. Was, was that exactly. Casablanca? I'm shocked, I'm shocked there's an injury in this in this particular body. <laughs> yeah, it's obviously been a rough, uh, rough go of it physically for Buxton this year, going right back to the beginning of the season. Uh, no timeline for the Twins yet about what to expect there. Uh, we've talked a bunch of times this year in the frequent Buxton injuries that the uh, the primary beneficiary is usually Nick Gordon stepping into center field uh, in the current configuration of this team where Gordon is also getting a fair amount of playing time at other positions. It's also um, Gilberto Celestino is probably the other option in center field right now, which is not terribly exciting. But as you say, PD, if you're in some leagues where you're mining, mining deep red bats, there, are, there may be something to be had there. 
Yeah, Gordon and Celestino seem to fit together as a platoon possibility out there as well with Celestino on the short side. The Twins also made a move that caught me a little by surprise. They called up a catcher, Caleb Hamilton. They already have a couple of catchers on the roster, and Hamilton's, you know, he's not going to make anybody forget Johnny Bench. Why would they add a third catcher to this uh, roster? I think it's basically because the other two were Gary Sanchez and Sandy Leone. Sandy Leone being one of the worst hitting catchers around. Now that Jeff Mathis is uh, you know, no longer employed in the majors, I think Sandy Leone carries that baton. So uh, Baldelli had found a couple of places this week where he was pinch hitting for the catcher and apparently wanted to have the ability to do that you know, without worrying about burning his last catcher, et cetera. So they've added uh, Caleb Hamilton to the roster. Uh, I'm still not excited about any of these guys. Hamilton's really an org guy who's you know, one of those catchers who has you know a little bit of power emerging as he gets uh, you know a little deeper into his uh, a, a little closer to maturity here. But I don't think you're going to see him play much. Leon, like I said, can't hit, and Gary Sanchez, you know, good things happen when he puts a bat- battling ball, but that doesn't happen nearly enough. Minnesota also optioned starting pitcher Devin Smeltzer to AAA, and boy, this this is something that legitimately caught me by surprise. They promoted starter Aaron Sanchez, and my first thought was, is this the same Aaron Sanchez who used to be a pretty good starter for Toronto and of late has been a pretty bad starter for some other teams? It It is, and I think it's a statement, uh, we might have talked about this a couple of weeks ago with, um, you know, um, that the twins were leaning heavily on Dylan Bundy and Chris Archer. And that obviously wasn't going well. So I think they opted for curtain number three, right. <laughs> Which turned out to be uh, a goat eating hay in the form of Aaron Sanchez or something like that. <laughs> but yeah. but uh, not, not, not good news for, uh, you know, for fantasy purposes. Um, you know, Sanchez has already been through a couple of teams in, uh, 2022, we started out in Washington and then, uh, you know, hung up uh, in the ERA over seven there. And now he's got a couple of appearances with the Twins. Um, but again, when the competition is Dylan Bundy and Chris Archer, he might get some more rope here. Um, and then I don't know that he'll actually make it back to starting, but I did see that uh, Kenta Maeda's on a rehab assignment from his Tommy John surgery. And I guess if these clowns keep clowning around deep into September and my, my unit checks a couple of boxes on the, uh, on his rehab tour, maybe we'll see him in the last uh, week or two of the year. I don't know about that, but uh, you know, you can certainly understand why the twins would uh, send my out. Cause he can't, he can't really be worse than these guys. When I read it, the news report that mentioned Aaron Sanchez, of course, the first thing I did was go to the um, player list at baseballhq.com, to f- first of all, to find out if it was the same Aaron Sanchez. You know, it's not a totally uncommon name, and sure enough, it was him. His first eight starts, I think, out of the first eight starts, he had seven straight PQS disasters, PQS ones or zeros. The f- uh, this this string of starts, it was it's amazing that anybody could do that, including four straight zeros. That said, I think you know, as you say, if he pitches a tall well, it's not like Minnesota's overloaded with opportunities. So keep your eye on Aaron Sanchez. Maybe get some run. I don't know. I, I certainly wouldn't add him to my roster in any kind of shallower league, even a fifteen mixed. I don't think he can find his way on unless he surprises us and, you know, goes out there and throws two PQS fives in a row and all of a sudden recaptures the magic. But recent history suggests not. 
that that's good because I always need to make a note of someone like that for the uh, there's a blurb in the baseball forecaster that I up, update every year that talks about our consistency grades and how consistency isn't always a good thing. And there's always somebody who I want to point out that meets this profile. So I can say like, yes, Aaron Sanchez has a consistency grade of A. That does not mean you want Aaron Sanchez. So maybe he'll be that guy this year. Yeah, there's such a thing as consistently bad as well as consistently exactly. good. Yeah. Uh, the White Sox placed starter Michael Kopech on the 15-day IL. He's got a sore knee. They recalled a relief pitcher, Tanner Banks, uh, Rick Green covering the White Sox for playing time today. What's the latest with the rotation in Chicago? Yeah, I guess Kopech is only supposed to miss the minimum, which I which surprised me. I didn't actually get to see the the outing where he was hurt earlier this week, but I guess you know he didn't make it out of the first inning. He only pitched to like four batters, and uh, and uh, you know his velocity was way down, et cetera. I guess he had tweaked the knee during warmups and uh, you know tried to make a go of it, and it was not successful. But I guess it's not serious. They're saying he's only going to miss the minimum. Uh, so um, Tanner Banks is up to provide you know relief. Uh, for the next eight or nine days until Kopech's turn, until Kopech can slide back into the rotation. There's one missing start in there before Kopech can get activated again. I guess it's going to be Davis Martin uh, pitching this weekend. Uh, he had a PQS2 outing a couple of weeks ago for the White Sox, going five and two thirds and only giving up one run. Uh, he's got a four and a quarter ERA with an X ERA that's a little worse than that over 36 innings this year. So he's a. Uh, a perfectly cromulent villain, I guess. Kansas City placed right-hander Zach Greinke and right-hander Josh Stomont, the reliever. Both of them have tendonitis in the pitching arm and the forearm for Greinke, the biceps for Stomont. In both cases, not what you want to hear. They recalled a couple of pitchers I have to confess I don't know that I've heard of, uh, Colin Snyder and left-hander Anthony Mizowich. And when I say that, I think I have heard of him. They come up, but Ryan Williams covers the Royals for playing time today. What are the fantasy ramifications here, if any? Yeah, the, the forearm strength for Greinke sounds particularly ominous. Uh, the fantasy implications may be minimal because I don't think Zach Greinke is widely rostered at this point in his career. But uh, we knocked four percentage points off of his playing time and two off of Stomont's. Um, but yeah, I think both of those are liable to get uh, to lead to bigger cuts or even getting zeroed out as we get uh, deeper into September here. Uh, Jonathan Heasley and Jackson Coer probably pick up most of the, those innings, uh, Heasley has already jumped into that rotation, and probably this probably gives him more staying power. Um, Cower may start for Granky on Saturday, basically because they have nobody else. Um, because they have a couple other guys, Max Castillo and Daniel Magnet, who could have been candidates, but they're uh, they're all, they're just off rotation in AAA. So I think it's got to be Cower who starts uh, this weekend. And Musilich, you're right. I think. Uh, we last saw him in Seattle, if I'm not mistaken. He was the uh, he, he was the lefty guy in that uh, deep Minnesota deep Seattle bullpen, excuse me, for uh, as recently as earlier this season, if I'm mistaken. Uh, but Snyder and Musilich will probably uh, backfill that bullpen in uh, in Stomont's role, which you know back early in the season we thought Stomont was a uh, a threat to some of the uh, Scott Barlow save ops, but you know, Barlow notched his 20th save this week and now has a, uh, you know, a, a pretty decent grip on that role. Up in your neck of the woods, uh, Boston put right-handed starter Nathan Eovaldi on the IL and 
when I first heard of this, I thought they were just kind of looking at it, but looks like it's uh, serious enough that they want to give him some time off. Chris Olson for playing time today. What gives with Nathan Eovaldi? Yeah, it's a trapezius muscle, and uh, I guess it's just not responding well to treatment. And, you know, Eovaldi, uh, you know, I think even before he went on the IL for the last, uh, you know, last several starts, uh, you know, it seemed like his velocity was somewhat off. So I don't know if he's been battling this for a while and they finally just decided to shut him down and get him straightened out. Um, he's a, he's a free agent at the end of this year. So, um, you know, he may well be back in Boston, but Boston, I think doing the right thing in terms of trying to get him healthy and scored away and able to end the season on a high note. Um, so, but he could be back as soon as next weekend, if all goes well there, but I have given that he has been responding poorly so far. I wouldn't be surprised if, uh, it's even a start longer than that before he comes back. And then as far as what Boston's doing, you know, Josh Winkowski and Cutter Crawford have both been in the rotation uh, while the, while various other injured parties have been coming and going lately. Uh, Brian Bayo, you know, got called up earlier in the summer and got knocked around a little bit, but has looked better in his last couple of starts. I think he's actually relatively entrenched now. Bayo is, behind uh, Nick Pavetta, Michael Waka, and Rich Hill. So I think that means that when Ivaldi comes back, assuming everyone else is still in place, that one of Cutter Crawford or Winkowski will get, uh, will get bumped because I think they're, gonna, they, they're committed to taking a good look at Bayo in September. He's their top pitching prospect, is he not? As faint praise as that is, yes, <laughs> he is. <laughs> I watched Winkowski against Toronto the other night, and that, that was not good. Uh, six innings, I think he gave up in a couple of innings. And Bayo, although his ERA is nothing to write home about, 736, he's got a whip over two. But all of his skills look actually not too bad. Yeah, they do. And he came up, you know, he's one of those guys that profile-wise, you weren't too uh, surprised to see him struggle because you know it's sort of the command isn't quite there right and that's the kind of guy who often has a uh, a rough transition into the majors uh because you can't you're not getting as much help on uh swings out of the strike zone in the majors as you are down in the uh you know especially the lower minors but um in you know in his uh start earlier this week after getting called up uh for, for his most recent stint against the Jays, you know, it was one walk and seven strikeouts, which is much, much better than what we saw in his first stint. Uh, he was up for four starts in July and I think had a basically a one-to-one walk-to-strikeout ratio. So um, if he made some tweaks down on his um, last AAA stint and got the command straightened out, then he certainly gets a lot more interesting. Boston also put trade acquisition Eric Hosmer, the first baseman, on the 10-day IL. He has got some problems with his lower back. The IL stint is retroactive to Sunday, but Hosmer was playing more than a little bit, and he was doing okay. What are they going to do with Hosmer not on the lineup? Yeah, so it's... Uh, <laughs> I had to text one of my friends the other day and say, you know, sent him a screenshot of the uh, Red Sox lineup for... Wednesday night or something like that, and said, this feels like giving up. Um, Hosmer was out, which meant Franchi Cordero was back after. Uh, and, you know, that may not be bad news because uh, Franchi looked like he had gotten his swing straightened out a little bit into play. So Franchi picks up some of the playing time. Uh, but it would normally be Franchi and Brian Dahlbeck filling in 
at first base, but Francie had to play first because Dahlbeck was actually over at shortstop, which really just kind of boggled my mind. Uh, Dahlbeck has now started at all four infield positions, and he is not going to be mistaken for Mark Belanger at second base, at shortstop, excuse me. So, uh, you know, that was, it was just a case where Xander Bogarts was dinged up, needed a day off. Christian Arroyo was also hurt. So they, they didn't really have a shortstop on the roster and didn't want to make a move, I guess. So they were just like, oh, Dahlbeck, go figure out shortstop as best you can. And like I said, it just really kind of felt like giving up. So uh, presumably Bogart comes back, and then we go back to Franchi and Dahlbeck at first base for as long as Hosmer is out. And, you know, Dahlbeck and Franchi, we did that for the first three or four months of the season to to to, to not great reviews. So maybe we'll see Tristan Cassis soon. That would be that would be more fun. I was going to ask about Tristan Cassis. He's been on a tear in the minor leagues over the last little while, and it seems like there's no reason to keep him down. Uh, maybe is there something going on with playing time management, like service time management, or shenanigans of that nature? Why are they holding out on Tristan Cassis? I mean. I'd like to think there's no reason for an organization with the resources of the Red Sox to be playing service time games. To be fair, you know, the, the, the glass half full scenario there is Cassis missed, missed a bunch of time early in the summer. He was injured. So they may just want, be wanting him to bang out a bunch of at-bats before they call him up. But I would certainly hope that he is a September call-up and gets a, uh, gets a decent look at, at um, first base in the majors because – I've seen enough of Fran- Franchi and Dahlbeck, especially if Hosmer's going to be out for a while. Let's let's bring up Cassis and see what we have there because uh, that's not uh, you know the the the, the Dahlbeck and Franchi Cordero experiment. I think can officially be declared a failure. In Tampa, the Rays, and this is ominous, they pulled Wander Franco out of his rehab assignment at AAA. Chris Olson covers the Rays for playing time today. What do we know about Wander Franco, and is this as dire as it sounds? Yeah, it doesn't sound good at all. Uh, you know, if you remember, he's been out with a hand injury since early July uh, that was causing him pain when swinging the bat. Um, and we're now out to sort of the long end of the six to eight week um, injury duration that that was predicted to be. And uh, he's now off the rehab assignment, like you said, looking for further treatment. Uh, so, you know, not good news in any way. This was, we, we thought this would be behind him by now. So they have a gap in the infield and at the top of the order. What are they going to do? Yeah, it's you know as far as, far as the infield, it's been Taylor Walls at shortstop, and you know there were a bunch of candidates there when Franco first went out. We talked about Walls and Bruhan and Isaac Parides and all of these uh, candidates. It's, they've really settled in on Walls. He tends to stick to the bottom of the order, but they're uh, they're leading on him for his shortstop defense, and he's gotten. Uh, more competent at the plate, at least in terms of boosting his walk rate and his contact rate. You know, there's not much uh, in terms of, you know, driving the ball or run production happening, but he's at least putting the ball in play and drawing some walks. And from a fantasy perspective, you know, there were a couple of steals early in the season, but that's sort of dried up. So uh, there's not, there's not a lot of excitement there. Um, there's also been Yu Chang who's uh, been filling in there and a little bit of a uh, short side, short side platoon. But um, not much fantasy help there, mostly because of lack of opportunity. 
Let's return to Kansas City and put a bow on this. Uh, they put first baseman Vinny Pascantino on the 10-day IL and recalled catcher Sebastian Rivero from AAA. Pascantino was hitting the ball with some authority. Uh, what's going on with this decision to put him on the IL with what looked like just a kind of a tweak of a shoulder rather than an injury? Yeah, it's happened on Monday afternoon in a uh, in at bat where he took like a bad swing and missed and came off the field holding his arm and Boy, in terms of weekly lineup changes, there's nothing worse than the guy who starts the uh, the very first game on Tuesday on Monday at two o'clock, the first game of the week, right? right. And by two twenty, and by two twenty, he's out for the week, and you just have to stare at him, you know, dead in your lineup for the rest of the week. Just super aggravating. But as you say, the you know, the glass half full is that it sounds like it's not totally serious, and he may be back after uh, after the ten days. So, um, as much as I complained about the Franchi Cordero. Brian Dahlbeck platoon in Boston. Um, I think it's even more useless to see Ryan O'Hearn getting more at bats in Kansas City. I think we've established that there's uh, you know there's no big payoff coming there. But yet that's who we, that's who we seem to be picking up the playing time in uh, in Pasquantino's absence here. And Pasquantino was playing really well. I, I had him on a I have him on my American League tout roster. He's got a three fifty on base percentage in his two hundred plate appearances so far. Eight homers and fifteen sort of fifteen ish eighteen ish runs in RBIs. That's a f- factor more of the lineup than it is of his performance because he's been hitting the ball with some authorities. Four thirty four slugging percentage. You know, uh, OPS close to eight hundred. He's he's doing everything that he needed to do. So this is kind of a disappointing thing, but. What you said about uh, O'Hearn makes me think of what they're doing with their outfield as well. They recalled an outfielder, Drew Waters. He's a prospect. And they sent Nate Eaton, another outfielder whom they had on their roster recently. Ryan Williams covering the story for playing time today. Eaton got a fairly short look, and I'm wondering if the Royals are just cycling through all the guys they have to see what's what. Yeah, I... You know, it's a scary thing to try to get into Mike Matheny's head sometimes, right? Um, but <laughs> Matheny, in this case, said that he wanted to get Waters a chance to come up and play all three outfield positions. And he said that this was, the, this was the scary part. He said the team had created a spreadsheet to make sure all the players get all right. time and too often. I mean, you know, whoa, spreadsheets have made it to Kansas City. Welcome to 1982, right? Yeah, it's Lotus 1-2-3. <laughs> totally. <laughs> So what are they doing? Yeah, so I mean, uh, Waters, has, he's, he's playing right field right now. He got a couple of games there after his call-up. And, you know, taking Matheny at his word, we've cobbled together, you know, I think it's 65% share of the playing time for him, expecting him to, uh, you know, jump around and uh, appear in all three line, all three outfield spots, you know, a couple of days a week, essentially. Um, and most of that playing time that we allocated to him came at the expense of Eaton since he's back in AAA. Um, and of course, uh, he, his cup of coffee of 10 games was uh, unimpressive with a 190 batting average and a sub 600 OPS. He did steal a couple of bases, but you know, I guess that means he was running wild considering he probably only got on first base about three times with those numbers. Um, and, then, yeah, and then we shaved the rest of the outfielders out there to make that, to, to make that allocation for Waters. And meanwhile, I'm going to guess that catcher Sebastian Rivero is not going to be the kind of guy who's going to turn a fantasy season around. He's in a lineup that has Salvador Perez. When Perez is not playing or DHing, then they can stick MJ Melendez in there. This guy looks like he's going to be primarily used to hold down the end of the bench in the event of a high wind. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. He's the 
emergency option when when one of Perez and Melendez is DHing and the other one is catching that they uh, they don't have to nuke the DH spot if they need to put the other one behind the plate. Not nothing, but also not a fantasy asset. Hey, Ray, thanks a million for helping us out, and we'll catch up with you again next week. Sounds great. Thanks, PD. Ray Murphy is a co-general manager at Baseball HQ and a columnist at the site and covers the American League for us here at Baseball HQ Radio. Next up, it's part two of our feature expert interview with Joe Orico from SportsEthos.com and the Fantasy MLB Today podcast. Joe will be coming to the plate for his second at-bat next on Baseball HQ Radio. Right now, though, I want to let you know about another great article at BaseballHQ.com. In the Speculator column, columnist Ryan Bloomfield looks at September playing time experiments that are worth watching, including the pending arrivals of Arizona outfield prospect Corbin Carroll and Baltimore shortstop prospect Gunnar Henderson. And, of course, Albert Pujols' run at 700 home runs. Ryan also looks at takeaways from the September schedule. And don't miss the next edition of Baseball HQ Radio. It's another Friday full edition featuring an expert interview with Rob DiPietro from the Pull Hitter podcast, plus all our usual great stuff, National and American League news analysis and our Baseball HQ commentaries, and Rob DiPietro next Friday on another Friday full edition of Baseball HQ Radio. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for part two of our feature expert interview with Joe Orico from SportsEthos.com and the Fantasy MLB Today podcast. Joe, welcome back to part two. Thank you again for having me on here. Uh, really looking forward to we actually get into the meat here now. We're going to talk about some players. Uh, should be a lot of fun. Talk about some players for sure. On the Fantasy MLB Daily podcast on Monday, you talked about some players you called must-adds, and I guess this is something you do pretty regularly. But before we get to your individual recommendations and comments, what makes a player a must-add in a league? I think it really depends on there's so many different factors. It's very individualized. If you are in a roto format and you're behind in steals in a lot of other places, you're pretty okay. Uh, then you might add a player who is specifically just a steals guy when they don't really help you anywhere else. And they might be a must add player for you. Whereas most of your league mates would just leave them on the waiver wire. Typically I'm trying to find players who give you at least three categories worth of production. If they give you two and it's really excellent production from two categories, then you'll take that. But I'm trying to find guys who provide some kind of value across the board. Like I said, at least three categories. Maybe you can get away with two, but I'm trying to find guys who are not just maybe pinholed in one thing. Like John Birdie is an example of somebody who, given the right situation earlier in the year, I think he was very valuable, but he only contributed in one place. So I'm, I'm trying to find guys who do a little bit more than that uh, as a whole. You called Alec Bohm of Philadelphia your biggest must-add. Uh, why the appreciation for a guy having a season that a lot of fantasy analysts have called disappointing? Although he had two home runs Sunday, he just has 10 for the season. What's so great about Alec Bohm? I honestly, I don't really agree with the characterization. I think what he's given you so far has been really valuable. Uh, on the Yahoo player rankings, uh, he's the 121st ranked player for the season. I think that's probably somewhere, honestly, a little bit higher than we would have expected from him. But 62 runs, 58 RBIs, like you said, 10 home runs, maybe you'd hope for a little bit more. But also a 292 batting average. So he's giving you like three and a half, four categories worth of production there. Third base is really not a spot where there are a ton of options on the waiver wire. There's been a couple of guys recently, like Emmanuel Rivera, I think is a decent deeper league guy. But for most leagues, I think Alec Bohm is somebody who should be on a lot more rosters than he currently is. Uh, over on Yahoo, it's about 65% rostered. I just think there's 
there's more room for him to go up there. On the other side of the coin, when Jake Fraley put up a nice little run, you cautioned that this wasn't who he is as a hitter. So why is Jake Fraley, despite his recent success, not a must-add? Jake Fraley, for me, I just look for, and I might be speaking out of both sides of my mouth here, but I want more of a track record. And I know that Alec Bohm doesn't have such a long track record. He's very young, but he's been pretty consistent this season. Uh, I know there's been a little bit up and down, but he's batting 290 as a whole. Jake Fraley has been pretty hot recently over these last 60 or so at-bats, and it's only up his season total to 248. He's he's hit six home runs in those last 62 at-bats. It's been a really nice run, but I just worry that we're kind of reaching the end of it now. He sat two consecutive games. Now it was left-handed pitching, I believe, so maybe it's just a platoon thing there. But I just worry that we're going to be chasing the tail end of what is a hot streak for Jake Fraley, and ultimately he, he's not this good as a player, I don't think. I'd be looking to to get the next big thing as opposed to getting on the end of the train here as it's probably going to be slowing into the station any day now. That's a really the trick of adding and dropping players, isn't it? Is trying to figure out whether you're getting in at the beginning of a of a hot streak or the end of a hot streak. And really there's some argument about whether these things actually exist or at least that they're at all predictable. I mean, we know that sometimes a player will have a good week and that's going to happen. The question is, what effect does his current good week have on his future weeks? And is it measurable? Is it accountable? And usually I think the the answer is no. But getting back to Alec Bohm, I think this is interesting. Something you said is his splits versus right-handers and left-handers are pretty stark. He's whaling uh, left-handers, I think almost a 1,000 OPS, but under 700 against right-handers. And of course, there's way more right-handed pitchers in the league. Is that a concern for you when you look at a guy like Alec Bohm that the the platoon splits are so against him in that regard they are um but at the same time it's not like he's been poor against right-handed pitching he's still batting 267 uh the majority of his home runs have come against righties so uh, i guess he's batting 355 against left-handed pitching and that's excellent and it just it's a boost for me there but at the end of the day uh it just kind of evens out still to around that 290 range Uh, it's not something that i've really thought about so much but i'm not really too concerned about it though Gosh, it makes me want to start Alec Bohm a lot against left-handers. <laughs> he can really hit them. Uh, yeah. The And like you said, it's not like a, an utter disaster against right-handers. Uh, he's got seven home runs, I think, and 300-some uh, at-bats, which is a slower rate than versus left-handers, but it's not nothing. Yeah, yeah, no. Uh, the home runs aren't really the main thing for me with Bohm. It's a nice little added bonus, but the runs, the RBIs, and the batting average for me I think in most leagues, it's not it's not right that he's still sitting on waiver wire. Standard twelve team leagues, maybe it's a coin flip, but third base is not uh, it's not exactly flush with value. One of the stories of the year has been taking place over these last ten days or so. Albert Pujols all of a sudden looks like he's twenty seven years old again, and smacking home runs all over the place, and generally being beloved wherever he goes. Uh, but where are you on Albert Pujols as far as a pickup or a must add? Well, I have to admit a strong bias towards Albert Pujols. When I played baseball, I wore number five. I was a huge diehard Albert Pujols fan. And this has actually been, believe it or not, statistically, from what I remember seeing, uh, it was a tweet. I don't have this thing in front of me, but it's the best two-week span that he's ever put up in his career. Uh, It's really, at this point, for me, if you're in a daily changes league, he's a must-roster player. If you're setting your lineups weekly, Maybe it's a little more uh, touch and go because he's going to sit sometimes against righties. Although that has been changing a bit recently. He has plenty of the odd time against right-handed pitching. But he's a daily changes darling for me at this point. I think a lot of, even possibly maybe in a deeper weekly format, sure. 
I think that it can end any day now. This is kind of a miracle run, and maybe there's just something that you're not going to find on the stat sheet there in terms of Albert Pujols wanting to get the 700 home runs. That might be a factor. Maybe opposing pitchers aren't pitching him as hard, hoping that he'll get it. Some people might not really care. I remember when Miguel Cabrera was approaching 500 home runs, uh, there was a pitcher, I forget which one, but said, I'd be honored if you hit the 500th home run off of me. So maybe that's something two pitchers aren't quite given that they're 100%. I don't know. That's complete conjecture on my part. But I think that this is probably more fleeting than something that we can hope for for the rest of the season, unfortunately. But right now, add him up while he's hot. Yeah, and I wonder, especially against left-handed hitting, I think this is something more than hot. He's always been able to hit them, and uh, all of a sudden now he's hitting them again. I don't know. I, I like Albert Pujols, too. I grew up wearing a number five, too, but mine was Johnny Bench. Uh, but, you know, Pujols, Bench, you can't really go wrong on either one of them, I guess. Uh, you said you're quite a bit less enthusiastic about Evan Longoria than you used to be, and I guess that's kind of speaking for all of us. But what has taken the bloom off Longoria's rose for you specifically this year? Mostly it's just not being on the field consistently. When he is playing, he is typically performing. I mean, we've seen him the last couple of days. He's hitting home runs. Uh, for the season, he's batting just the shade under 260 and is 185 at bats, 12 home runs. He's been all right when he's been out there. I just don't think that we can really rely on him to stay healthy at this point in his career. He's somebody who is more or less available everywhere. He's currently owned in 6% of leagues on Yahoo. If you want to take a flyer, I would be okay with it i guess but if he got hurt today and they said he was out for two weeks i i wouldn't i wouldn't bat an eye it's just something that we've kind of come to expect with longoria i'd probably go for somebody a little more durable like alec bohm like alec bohm exactly if you still can a lot of competitive leagues bohm's not going to be there but and again even as i say durable we, we who, who the hell knows who's going to be durable but try and aim for guys who are not so injury prone is what i would generally uh tend to advise i've always found it kind of hard to calibrate these injury situations because I start thinking to myself, well, what what is the injury itself? What's the usual uh, time to recover? What's the age of the player? What's the player's injury history? What's the team's reputation for helping their guys recover and return to action so that there's quite a mix of influences that we have to parse through? How do you balance those various factors when you're assessing player injuries? I try and really, really look at it on a case-by-case basis. Even if there's a team that's really great at bringing guys back from injuries, maybe they're a little bit older, maybe it's their second particular uh, you know, Tommy John or whatever. Maybe there's something that's outside of the team's control that you have to look at. I try and really individualize these assessments of injured players. Now, for the most part, once a guy gets injured and it's anything more so than your standard 15-day IL stint, I'm likely dropping him. now. I don't really tend to hold out so much hope, especially before the season, that you're going to get value out of injured players. So I tend to try and avoid them as best as possible. If one of my guys gets hurt this season, it was mostly Adalberto Mondesi, Walker Bueller. Those guys, I've been cutting them right away. And now a lot of people are still holding on to Walker Bueller before this surgery, but I tend to try and you know churn them out and get the the newest hottest guy in the lineup as opposed to hoping for a guy to come back from an injury with all the rehab starts he's going to have and then hope that they return to form after several months. I I tend to just move on in those cases. Something that just jumped into my head is the amount of time left in the season seems to be a factor that we should consider too, in the sense that if you have an Evan Longoria and you're looking at him and you think to yourself, I don't know how long this guy's going to survive, but he doesn't have to last that long this year to, to be helpful because there's only six weeks to go. So you're not, it's not like you're 
taking him in, uh, you know, mid-May and saying, I hope he lasts the whole season because that seems like a bad bet. But at this stage with five or six weeks to go, I think you can be a lot more liberal about guys you're willing to take chances on. And that's a totally, that's a totally fair point. I just think for the most part, uh, a lot of leagues that I play in have limited ads, whether it be for the whole season or for the week. Usually it's four ads per week. I just worry that if there is an injury there, maybe, you know, a Wednesday or a Thursday, he goes down. And I can't really get over this in my head with with the injury thing with him. If he goes down at that point in the week, you've already used a couple of your ads, then you're kind of handcuffed. You have to add somebody there for him. I would try and go first for somebody who maybe has a little more eligibility. If they do have a second position, that's always, always appealing. But, you know, maybe, maybe you are changing my mind a little bit here as we go through it. If you want to take a shot on Longoria, I'm not going to, I'm not going to kill you for it. I just think it's, it's a little too risky for me at this point. We're in entering into the playoffs um, for head to head leagues. Anyway, if he does go down, especially in a weekly changes league, it's not going to be pretty. That's, that's where I'm coming from on that one. Yeah. And that's something I don't play those leagues. So it never pops into my head, but because you're coming into playoffs, it really kind of is the reverse of what I just said about there's a lot of time left in the season, because if you're in a single knockout tournament in your playoffs, there is no time left in the season. The season is now, and it ends on the weekend. If you don't get through it, then you're done. So in those situations, I think it's the Evan Longoria's of the world are even worse bets than they would have been in May or, or what have you, than they would be in at this same time of the year in a full season format, like, uh, like regular rotisserie. Yeah, I'm I'm pretty torn on him as a whole. I grew up really liking Evan Longoria. Uh, I used to go down to Florida and see some games down at Tropicana Field. Beautiful field. Uh, I don't know why we, we chose that one. But I, I really admired the guy for a lot of years. Like you said, the bloom has kind of come off the rose a little bit in, in recent seasons. And maybe I'm not viewing him in the lens that I should be. He still can have value when he's out there. I just, I think it's a, it's a landmine. Were you kidding when you said that about uh, Tropicana Field? Oh, absolutely. It's a, it's, it's a nightmare. It's an absolute nightmare. <laughs> I was going to say, I went to a game there once and, uh, it was the second worst place I ever watched a pro baseball game. The first worst being the kingdom in Seattle, which was ghastly beyond belief. Uh, you made an interesting point in discussing Keston Hura. He's burned you in the past and that has affected your assessment of him, even though he's having a better year now and he's available in some of your leagues, his own personal history with you has colored your opinion about your willingness to take him on. Uh, how does that work for you? Typically, now, this is not anything scientific or analytical, but if I get burned by a guy in one year, I'm typically avoiding them the next year. And I think that's more the human element, the emotional side. It was Luis Castillo for me last season, who I drafted pretty high up. I thought he was going to have a Cy Young worthy season. And it was an absolute nightmare for the first three or so months for Luis Castillo. So even where he fell to me uh, in drafts this season, I tended to avoid him just because, you know, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me, that kind of thing. With Keston Hura, it was kind of a similar story last year where I drafted him pretty high up. I was thinking he could replicate what we saw during the shortened 2020 season. And then we just saw total inconsistency. Last season, he batted 168, uh, you know, in 173 at-bats. Now, granted, this season, what he's done in fewer at-bats, he has more runs, more home runs, better average everywhere he's been, he's been improved. I just don't really have a lot of faith in the Brewers and in his playing time. I think if there's a couple of bad games in a row. They don't have any problem. They've already shown us uh, in sending him down to AAA or to put him on the bench. So while he's hot right now, 
I'm not so opposed to it, but he's another guy with a, a high level of volatility as we enter, especially in weekly settings. If you set him in your lineup on a Monday or Tuesday, he has a couple of bad games. The Brewers may just sit him down. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick Davitt with Joe Rico from SportsEthos.com and the Fantasy MLB Today podcast. And Joe, at SportsEthos.com on Monday, you had an article focusing on must-add pitchers. And I'm wondering again how your must-add recommendations are affected by context for pitchers, considering time of year, injury history, all of that kind of stuff, because pitchers are a different animal than hitters. Absolutely, yeah. So Earlier in the season, I might be more willing to take a chance on a more raw prospect. Uh, Hunter Green was somebody I added a lot earlier in the season. Um, who was the other one? Josiah Gray for the Nationals is somebody I also took a lot of flyers on on waivers because at that point in the year, you see the high strikeout upside. You figure maybe they can work on the contact issues and the walk problems. Now, at this point of the season, those guys, uh, I think Hunter Green is injured, but they're, they're not somebody you really want to take a chance on poor teams behind them. Uh, they haven't really shown that they can do it at the major league level, but there are some certain stats that we'll get into with a couple of guys. We're going to talk about where if these numbers are looking good, especially the independent fielding metrics, then I'm a lot more willing to take a chance on a guy at this point of the season who maybe has an ERA above four, or maybe they have lost more games than they've won or something like that. This type of year, this time of year, I'm looking for upside, especially with strikeouts and something that's not going to take too long to really progress. As far as my analysis can see, somebody that I think can have immediate success. How important is team context? Of course, we always prefer if the if the conditions allow it, we'd rather have a guy pitching for a good team than a bad one. But how important is team context, especially as we're in shorter time spans, as we discussed earlier, where you're really making kind of a one-start decision in a lot of instances if you're in the playoffs. It's really hard to say. It's honestly really hard to say. Um, this time of season, like I said, I'm doing a ton of head-to-head -head stuff. So when I'm looking at my streamers, if a guy is facing Washington or if he's facing Oakland or the Cubs, then I'm going to be a lot more inclined to want to stream them in here but when you reverse that and talk about your own players and will I want to roster a guy like a Cole Irvin, who has been absolutely dominant for the most part recently, but he plays for a poor team. He doesn't really strike out batters. Those things do factor into it. And again, it's pretty individualized for me on a case-by-case -case basis. So Cole Irvin, like I just said, I talked about him on my own program a couple of times recently. I'll take a chance on him, even though he's pitching for a fairly poor team, just because what he's done recently seems fairly sustainable, even without the strikeouts. Um, low low uh, ratios from him. Pitching in a big ballpark. Uh, there are a lot of factors that go into it besides just uh, the success of the team. Kind of a long-winded answer there. My apologies. But there's a lot, there's a lot more that goes into it than just uh, how good the team is behind him. Well, sometimes good analysis takes time to explain, so don't apologize for that, especially here at Baseball HQ Radio. I like when all our experts get into detail because I think it's the detail really that separates a lot of good fantasy analysis from lesser fa fantasy analysis, and good for you for putting the effort in. Uh, you made an interesting point about fantasy league playoffs when it came to rostering Jake Odorizzi. He had a solid start earlier this week against Pittsburgh, but then he's coming up against St. Louis, including presumably Albert Pujols perhaps, but Gosh, that's a lineup you really want to avoid, it seems like to me, if you're thinking about streaming a pitcher in. And the 
context again seems to matter. If you have to take both the starts, it really gives you something to think about when the two starts are against teams that are diametrically opposed in their offensive capabilities as Pittsburgh and St. Louis are. How do you square that circle? Yeah, that's where the weekly versus daily changes thing really comes into effect. If you're in a weekly changes league, it's probably worth it to just, for this week anyway, especially in hindsight, seeing how he did in his first start, Jake Odorizzi was probably worth uh, worth the risk. Now, if you are in the playoffs, that whole thing changes. Now, a lot of people are either in their last week of the regular season or first week of the playoffs, and that does have obviously a big difference on whether you'd start him. If you are in a daily changes league, which is what I focus on, that start against Pittsburgh on Monday was something that... It, almost a must must stream there. Uh, fantastic matchup. Odorizzi has a bad rap, but really he's not as bad as people think he is. That one for me is a must start. If you are still holding him in a daily changes league ahead of that start against St. Louis five days in advance, I don't know that that makes the most sense. I think there's a lot of better options you can find throughout the week on the waiver wire. Now, weekly settings, you set them and then you know you take the good with the bad, the Pittsburgh and the St. Louis. But if you can, you know, get that first great start out of him against the poor team and then move on to somebody else, I think that's ideal if you're in a daily changes league. Your top must-add arm was George Kirby of Seattle. Why do you like George Kirby? Well, for me, he's the most the top add because he's still less than sixty percent rostered in a lot of leagues, and I can't for the life of me really understand it now. Something that you had mentioned was that his low walk rate is kind of offset by his high uh, hit rate. He allows a lot of base hits, but those things do kind of average each other out. I think the whip is just a shade below uh, 1.2. So that has still been serviceable. He gives you plus strikeouts, pitching for a solid team, and he has made strides throughout the season. He's really been pretty consistent, but uh, over the season, he just seems to get stronger and stronger. And when you look at people already talking about next season, they're talking about him as an elite starting pitcher probably going to go somewhere in the top 60 75 picks so someone like that sitting on waiver wires for me is just ridiculous i think that should be remedied and it is if people are starting to add him the percentages have gone up from the 30s now to the 40s to the 50s it'll be by the time this is released probably over 60 percent rostered but just make sure that kirby's not available i i'm i'm in love with the guy to be honest with you i, I love what he does i do too he seems to struggle a little bit on the road i was just looking at his last four starts and uh, he had he had road starts against Texas and LA and he gave up five earned runs in 11 and a third innings. And when he gets home against pretty much anybody, he just seems to reverse everything and become really, truly super dominant. Is there any home road split that concerns you with George Kirby? Um, I hadn't really taken such a deep look at the home road splits. I've just been looking at what he's done as a whole recently. Uh, if I just pull up the home road splits now, I'll take your word for it, but Maybe in those kind of situations, you want to sit him, uh, sit him on the road, and then start him at home. For me, right now, uh, he's more or less a start. Uh, home ERA is three point four two on the road, three point one nine. I'm not so so worried about it, uh, to be honest with you. For the most part, here at this point of the season, uh, unless there's a really bad matchup coming up, maybe I'm not looking at the schedule. But if he's going into Yankee Stadium or you know going into Houston, maybe you sit him there. But uh, for the most part, I'm not not so worried about George Kirby. It's more like recent road starts that have been my concern. His ERA in his last couple is near four, and those were against Texas and the Angels, and neither one of those teams is super offensively talented or gifted. So I, I wonder, am I just being a little too fussy going into that level of detail when I'm looking at a guy who overall has been really solid? 
I think uh, it's worth taking a look at, but I'm not so, so worried there still. I'm looking more at the season as a whole. And like you said, even in those games, uh, he went five and two thirds, three earned runs, two earned runs, uh, still strong strikeouts. The reason I may say he's my number one ad is not because I think he's the best pitcher in baseball. I just think he's of the widely available arms. You're not going to really find so many guys below 60% rostered in most cases who have been this consistent, who do give you plus strikeouts. And let's not forget that George Kirby skipped a level of the minor leagues. They were very confident in him, and he has he has proven that he is definitely belongs as an ace. So, I don't know, you could even maybe have the question of, is he the best pitcher that the Mariners have right now? I think that that's another kind of interesting one to talk about. But uh, I, I'm I'm all in on George Kirby. It's possible. Are you at all concerned as well that the Mariners, if they feel like they're pretty solidly into the playoffs in real baseball, are going to take an opportunity to sit George Kirby down the stretch, maybe skip him in a start or two to keep him a little bit fresher for when the chips are on the line in the uh, very short playoffs? It's definitely possible, but I don't know that the Mariners are really going to solidify themselves there. Uh, They're currently in the last wildcard spot, two and a half up on the Orioles. Maybe if that lead goes to five, six games, then they'll be more comfortable. But you also got the White Sox knocking on the door there while the American League Central is still figuring itself out. But it'll be one of the White Sox, the Guardians of the Twins there knocking on the door behind them. I just have a hard time seeing at this point of the season that they'll build up enough of a lead where they would feel comfortable to sit him. It's possible that maybe he misses a start or maybe uh, they do maybe something similar to what we saw with Freddie Peralta last season. Maybe some four inning outings down the stretch. But... I'm not so worried. I just don't think that they're that far ahead that they can really, they don't really have that luxury at this point, especially with Logan Gilbert struggling. I I don't know that they'll be able to do that and still make it to the playoffs. Another intriguing name on your must-add pitchers list is Alexis Diaz of Cincinnati had five saves through Monday's games, uh, 170.090 decimals out of the Cincinnati bullpen. Uh, Obviously these numbers look really good. What else interests you about Alexis Diaz of the Reds? Well, of course, the day after I talked him up and wrote him up in an article and talked him on the pod, he blew a save because that's just the way it's going to go. But he is far and away, as far as I see it, the best uh, reliever there in Cincinnati. And you can maybe even argue uh, the best pitcher as a whole. They're not really looking at the... If you look through the, the stats of Cincinnati's pitchers this season, it's not a, not a great place to be. But Alexis Diaz should be the guy down the stretch getting the saves here. There are a couple of other guys like Hunter Strickland who, for unknown reasons, may get one or two of them. But the sub-2 ERA, the sub-1 whip, uh, crazy high strikeout numbers, and the ability there to give you possibly a couple of wins as well as some saves down the stretch here. Uh, if you're looking for closer help, I don't think there's many uh, many people I would recommend ahead of Alexis Diaz at this point. And you mentioned something about him I didn't know. He's the brother of Edwin Diaz, the closer in uh, in New York, so maybe it runs in the family. He is the brother of Edwin Diaz. Yeah, I didn't know that. Somebody else pointed that one out to me. I forget who it was, but... I. It makes sense. Must be some proud parents over there. That is for sure this season. And rich. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You called Milwaukee starter Aaron Ashby a prime example of why you dig deeper than your average traditional stats, as they're very deceiving when trying to determine how valuable he is from a fantasy perspective. Now, you're preaching to the choir for Baseball HQ Radio listeners, but what did you mean? Well, when you look at Aaron Ashby's standard numbers, he has two wins and 10 losses. His ERA is 458. Most pitchers, you'd look at that without looking at the name and you'd say, I don't want him anywhere near my fantasy team. When you start to dig in, though, the fielding independent pitching and the expected fielding independent pitching, along with the Sierra and those other pitching indicators, 
that kind of try and remove um, the defense and everything from the equation. Just look at the quality of pitches being thrown. They're all substantially lower than what his ERA is. Good strikeout numbers. Yes, he's still walking too many batters. But Aaron Ashby, I mean, he's injured now, so the point is a little bit moot for him in particular. But as a whole, I try and dig a lot deeper than just, you know, looking at the last two weeks or month and just looking at ERA. You need to definitely look at some of those independent pitching metrics as well as strikeout to walk rate. Those are typically what I try and uh, dig into. You called Andres Munoz of Seattle one of the best examples of a non-closer reliever who still has a ton of fantasy value. And of course, the question I'm going to ask is where's the fantasy value without the saves? For me, the value with Munoz, and this is really um, juxtaposing it with adding in a fringy starter uh, on a given week. Now, what Munoz typically gives you over a week is maybe three or four innings with somewhere between seven to ten strikeouts and maybe one earned run allowed. And the question I'll pose to your to your listeners is, would you rather have that kind of production, three, four innings, eight strikeouts, we'll call it one earned run, versus streaming in a fringy pitcher, let's call it maybe, who knows, uh, JT Brubaker or uh, whoever, somebody who is not a must-roster player by any means, but just somebody you're hoping for the best of out of a given week. Would you rather have that fringy guy versus a fireballing relief pitcher who can throw 103 who has ridiculous strikeout numbers, who is capable of getting you a win or two, a save or two down the stretch. I just think that in any given week, they're at least as valuable, these kind of relievers, as your fringy streamers would be. I think they're more valuable, frankly, because the likelihood of them blowing up is so much less. You throw your your brewbakers in there hoping for a good start. You're just uh, It seems like you're way more likely to get three innings of seven earned runs than you are to get three innings of seven earned runs from Andres Munoz or any of those other super high-skill relievers. I think you make a tremendous point on that score and that I don't think enough people are looking at the guys like Munoz and comparing them to who they should be comparing them to, which is fringe really, with fringe starters, rather. They're comparing them to good starters, and of course the comparison's not fair to either of them, really, because they're not in the same role in your fantasy context. You are going to start your good starters. You're not going to always start your low-talent starters, and that's where the question is, who am I going to start in their stead? And a guy like Andres Munoz, to me, makes a lot more sense than a brewbreaker, that's for sure. Uh, you've admitted going on and on on your pod and on Twitter about Justin Steele of the Cubs. I don't see it. What's going on with Justin Steele? I just wanted to quickly say uh, one more thing with Andres Munoz that he is one Paul Sewell bad pitch away from the closer role as well. So on top of all the other value we talked about with him there, uh, he could potentially, you know, get into the closer role if something were to happen. Now, but Justin Steele, it's again, the availability. He's less than 40% rostered in Yahoo. And I've gone on about Yahoo roster percentages today. It's because typically what I focus on, 38% rostered. Over the last month, 26 innings, he has 39 strikeouts, a 0.68 ERA, and granted a 110 whip higher than his ERA. A little bit strange there. But he has been, for the season, pretty damn consistent. I mean, uh, for the year, his ERA, I had it up and now it's gone. His ERA, I believe, is in the three-ish range here. Uh, 325 for the season. The whip is still a little bit high, yes, but he's been giving you crazy high strikeouts and really low ratios now for a while. The main thing is just the availability. You can get him still in in most of your leagues. He's not going to blow you away like this most of the time. Like a a sub-1 ERA is not something that you can expect from him consistently but right now it's what he's doing the wins might be a little scarce coming on the cubs but strikeouts and ratios have been there for for quite a while now 
Charlie Morton is on any free agent list, but you just wanted to comment on the extreme unlikelihood that he has a sub four ERA this season after a terrible start. I looked it up through his first 12 starts, barely five innings per start. He had an 8.11 OPS against a 5.67 ERA and a 148 whip. Boy, these are not Charlie Morton-like numbers, but in the 12 starts since, six innings plus per start, 2.64 ERA, 0.93 whip, 5.71 OPS against, so he knocked 240 points of OPS against off his ledger. How do we know that we can bet the rebound on a guy like Charlie Morton? Is 12 starts enough for you to be confident? Yeah, I'm pretty confident. There's obviously some factors like age. Uh, he is, what is he, 30, he's 38 years old. He's going to be 39. Yeah. He's going to be 39 in a couple of months. A lot of mileage on that arm. Now, earlier in the season, uh, he was getting dropped by some people after the first few starts. It was three or four walks every game, barely any strikeouts. It was five, five, four, one, and three through his first five starts. Not really giving you much. And then he just blew up. He started striking batters out again. Uh, it's really hard to say, can we rely on this long term? Uh, for the rest of the season, if I had to say one way or another, I'd be willing to buy into it just because now we are looking back, going pretty much like middle of May since then. He's been fairly reliable. A couple of bad starts in there, but the, the majority of his work this season has been of a high quality, and those strikeouts don't grow on trees. Uh, Double-digit strikeouts are very hard to come by. So how many more years of this are we going to get from him? I don't know, but uh, these last few weeks, I, I'm still putting my faith in Charlie. When I was a kid growing up and playing baseball, the insult that they used to yell at you when you were on the field is, pitcher's got a rubber arm. But as I've gotten older, I've started to realize a rubber arm's actually a pretty good thing to have. And Charlie Morton, yeah. it seems to me, is one of those guys who might have one. He's one of those guys, when I look at him, I think, this guy could be pitching till he's in his 40s. He could be the Tom Brady of uh, of Major League Baseball. Yeah, no, uh, I've actually kind of made that uh, same kind of comparison with like Verlander and Scherzer the other day of saying, they're going to fall off, but what if they don't? <laughs> and it's similar to a lesser degree with Charlie Morton, but another guy who maybe he has three more years, maybe he's done after this year. It's really a roll of the dice at this point. It's hard to predict, but I'm keeping my fingers crossed these last couple of weeks. He can, he can maintain what he's done uh, so far this season, or for most of the season anyway. You know, in, in my straight draft leagues that I drafted this year, I had Verlander and Scherzer everywhere I could get them because they were being discounted. And what my belief is, is kind of a bit on a personal level and not on a statistical level. I think if Justin Verlander doesn't think he can pitch well, I don't think he's going to go pitch. I think he's going to say, I'm done. And I think Scherzer's the same. He doesn't want to go out there and give one last year where he pitches to a 550 ERA and a 150 whip and, you know, goes 4 and 14 or something like that. I think they have too much pride. And therefore, if I see Justin Verlander says, I'm ready to go, I'm taking him at his word and I'm going to, I'm going to take the discount and pick him up in the sixth round or whatever it was this year, sixth or seventh for me. And it'll probably be higher next year paradoxically, because it should go down as he gets older. But I think a lot of people are starting to realize that there's something about sheer competitiveness that kind of backstops the our willingness to place bets on guys like that. You made an interesting point discussing San Diego left-hander Sean Manaya, another guy I drafted all over the place with much less success. He's been a disappointment, and you noted that he's been dropped in quite a few leagues, but a lot of fantasy managers don't know that he's been dropped, and this sounds weird to me, but it, I know it's true. What was your point about what we need to be doing out here? Yeah, it's not going to be a lot of leagues, but he's fallen below the 80% threshold on Yahoo. He's been above 90 for most of the season. And he's just somebody who still has that high strikeout upside. He's pitching for a very good team. Yes, he's been disappointing uh, for the season, 464 ERA. 
But he's one of those guys where, and even today, I saw Blake Snell being dropped by a few, not a ton of teams, but there were some people getting rid of Blake Snell. He had a bad start. It's like these high strikeout pitchers for really quality ball clubs. When I'm when I'm evaluating pitchers, there's two things. They're not the most important things, but the quality of the team they pitch for and their strikeout ability are definitely at the top of the list or close to the top of the list of things that I try and look for. Manaya can really rack up the strikeouts. It has not been so great this season. He's averaging about a strikeout per inning. But you combine that with the fact that he's playing for a contender, there's likely going to be more win opportunities than you'd have streaming in the average guy. For me, if Sean Manaya was dropped in your league, I'd be taking a flyer on him. I think that he has plenty of upside these last couple of weeks. You're lukewarm on Houston starter Jose Urquidy because of his lowest strikeouts because you say strikeouts are the home runs of pitching, which is a neat way to put it. What else is there about Jose Urquidy that you maybe are a little less enthusiastic about? I just think he's somebody who's always kind of overperformed a little bit. If you look at some of those pitching indicators I was talking about earlier, the fielding independent pitching and the expected stats, they're always higher than what he actually produces. I feel like he's had a good couple of years, but definitely uh, more so on the lucky side of things. I don't know. Can we expect him to give us a sub four ERA every season? Maybe not. But the fact that he pitches for Houston, the fact that, you know, he's going out there every fifth day and he's getting victories, a lot of them. I mean, more so than you'd find for pitchers who are a lot better. He has 12 victories. There are a lot of pitchers this season who do not have 12 victories. The fact that he's pitching for a good team means I'm going to value him a little bit higher. And when I was making notes for this, the guy that I juxtaposed him with was Patrick Sandoval. And I think I prefer Patrick Sandoval as a whole, despite his control issues. But he pitches for a poor team. Now, he has more strikeout potential. I like Patrick Sandoval more in a vacuum. But the fact that he's pitching for the Angels versus the Astros, you'd go with Urquidy uh, pretty much 100 times out of 100 there unless you're really specializing for strikeouts. So the fact that he's playing for a good team, that really goes across baseball. We've seen it with Tyler Anderson and a couple of others this season. It can be a, a really underrated part of your fantasy value, just the stadium that you suit up in every night. Something you said really uh, sparked a, a, something in my mind, and that is, this is a pitcher, Urquidy we're talking about, who has consistently under ERA'd his expected ERAs or his estimators, whatever, XERA, FIP, XFIP. He's always underneath them. And at what point do you think it's legitimate for us to say there's something about the way this guy pitches that the estimators are missing? And that just because he has a FIP of 437 and an ERA of 363, which is what he is this year, so he's 70 points under his uh, under his FIP and under his XFIP is exactly the same pretty much. So he's under these uh, estimator metrics every year. And at a certain point, don't we just have to say, for, for this pitcher, for some reason, I'm going to throw out the estimators and I'm going to believe the ERA because he just keeps doing it. Yeah, I think maybe some people are there. For me personally, it's hard to really say why he's done so well. And maybe he has just been lucky for these last few years. But his BABIP is 250 for his career, which is pretty well below the league average. He leaves close to 80% of batters on base for his career, which is also pretty high above the league average. So I don't really know how to quantify Jose Urquidy. If he was pitching for the Nationals or if he was pitching for Oakland or somebody else, I don't think that I would be wanting to to roster him. I think that a, a good portion of his value does come from the fact that he plays for Houston. He's not giving you a lot of strikeouts, and granted, he doesn't walk a lot of batters either. But I think that really uh, a, a huge chunk of this value comes from the team he plays on. If he were to be go, uh, traded to a poor team, 
I wouldn't be interested in him, I don't think. He's a really flyball-oriented pitcher, too, which is something that ordinarily would, would uh, kind of increase his ERA at, and low, lower his whip, and, and it seems to be that his ERA has been pretty stable anyway around where we would expect, given the, the left-on-base and BABIP stats. I don't know. I think that these Jose Urquidy guys are pretty interesting from that point of view. There's always four or five of them every year that you look through the through the results and you compare them to the metrics and you say something here's just out of alignment not just pitchers hitters too you know you've got a guy who strikes out a lot and doesn't walk very much and still hits 320 or something like that and you look at this guy and you think this can't happen and then the next year he does it again and the year after that he does it again and after a while I just wonder that you just have to put an asterisk by him on your cheat sheet and say <laughs> ignore this guy's metrics because for some reason they just don't apply to him yeah it's it's definitely if he does this again next season, then I'll be I'll be all with you. But I just think there's going to be one year where Keedy has a uh, ERA above five, and we'll really see the true version. Now, he's a guy like of all the players we've talked about today, he might be the hardest one to actually nail down. Uh, his stats all indicate that he shouldn't be doing this, but like you said, maybe he's just somebody we put an asterisk beside, and. We draft and we hope for the best year after year, even though I think one year uh, we'll probably see a uh, return to what it should be. I think uh, after this call's over, I'm going to go over to Baseball Savant and see if he's somehow maybe getting a lot of medium-level contact on ground balls and fly balls, which are the surest outs that there are, are those cans of corn fly balls and those you know balls that aren't hit soft enough to trouble an infielder and not hard enough to get by him. It's just a four-hopper to short, and he, and he gets outs. Uh, maybe that's something to do with it. He's just inducing some kind of weirdly soft contact or medium contact. It's really interesting, though, and you did make a point in the podcast and in your writing about lower K pitchers on good teams maybe being more valuable than higher K guys on poor teams, and that's because of wins. But at the same time, we know that wins are really capricious as a stats. Uh, you can have guys who pitch very well for good teams and don't win a lot of games and vice versa. How do you find the right balance between getting the strikeouts, having the win potential because of the team, but they're on opposite sides of the seesaw? Where do you draw the line or do you just do it on a case-by-case -case basis? It's more case-by-case, -case, but this just goes back uh, to the point about Sean Manaya and those and Blake Snell. Like, Big strikeouts, pretty good team. Like that's for me. Obviously, you got to dig deeper, but those are really important factors. Just baseline for value. Where do I draw the line exactly on wins versus strikeouts? I think, especially this season, we've seen some guys who have performed way, way above what they should have done. Tyler Anderson is the main one that comes to mind. You probably should prioritize the team a little bit maybe over over the player and even as i say that it's like well maybe it should be the other way around it's pretty much a coin toss for me i, I sometimes i do this on my own show i'll go through the thought process with the people i don't always have my opinions fully formed when i come in i think it's pretty close honestly and i think a lot of it is your own philosophy do you want to have players who are only pitching for the dodgers and the astros and the yankees and the mats and whoever or can you find guys who are your Merrill Kellys, who I've had a lot of success with this season? I mentioned Cole Irvin earlier. Guys who don't strike out a ton of batters, play for poor teams, but they just lower your ratios. I think, honestly, there's not one definitive answer I can give you. I think that it's definitely something that each individual person has to more go through their own roster and see. I've got a ton of guys who are getting me wins already. Maybe I need to boost some strikeouts. So I'll go for a guy who is maybe like a Josiah Gray, who... 
He's not going to win you many games. The ERA might be terrible, but he's going to strike out a lot of batters. Maybe that's something you need. And conversely, maybe you're all set for strikeouts. So you got a ton of those guys, and you just need a couple of maybe even a three or a four starter on one of those better teams to try and just get you eight or nine, maybe 10 victories throughout the season, a la Tyler Anderson this year. Something else I'll throw in there too is if you're planning on keeping the pitcher from now to the end, you might want to look at who his likely starts are going to be against because you're now down to where there's only five or six of them left. And you certainly want to be on the lookout for road starts against tough teams. You know, just take the two pitchers, write down who they're pitching against and where, and look at the two lists and say, oh, this guy's got three games against, you know, St. Louis, the Dodgers, and the Yankees, and this other guy's pitching against Washington, Pittsburgh, and Oakland. I'm going to take the the first, the second guy because I like the opposition better, even though I maybe don't like his skills as much or even his own team as much. Opposition is something that you really need to look at, but it takes you a little work. That's the thing about it. You know, when you're getting into this level of playing, you're actually having to go and get all the schedules and plot out the starters for the rest of the year and, and try to figure out where these guys are likely to start. And it takes a little effort, but the effort will pay off. Uh, you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Joe Arico from sportsethos.com and the Fantasy MLB Today podcast. And Joe, I like to wrap up these discussions by looking at some boons and banes. These are players who could help down the stretch or could hurt you down the stretch. Let's start with your boons. These are players who look like good value for the rest of the season in the American league who's a batter you think could be a boon the one that i've chosen here is yuli guriel because i feel like a lot of people have moved on from him in a lot of more maybe in your more competitive leagues he's still probably going to be rostered but he's dipped below 50 percent here on yahoo he is a guy who bats second every day in a very very good lineup for the year yes he's only batting 246 but we can't forget that he did win the batting title last season he is somebody who goes on a bit of a hot streak like he's on right now uh, he's batting 283 over the last month like i said good lineup spot he can give you a little bit of production across the board and even shockingly stolen base wise this season eight steals uh, compared to only seven home runs which is not something you would have won a lot of money betting that in the preseason i guess is the best way i could put it can't really expect too many steals but you get a general bit of production from him everywhere in a good lineup uh, less than 50 percent rostered for me i think that he's a really strong ad how about a boon nationally batter i chose bryson stott for this one because he is also in a lineup that is pretty strong uh, obviously not as strong as um, the astros but over the last couple of weeks, especially, he's been very hot. He's batting 347 over his last 50 at-bats. He's stealing bases. Uh, he can give you that little power-speed combo while sitting somewhere in the middle of that Phillies lineup, which is hopefully going to be uh, featuring Bryce Harper again very soon. So I'm liking Bryson Stott here as a deeper league and even possibly a shallower league ad, uh, depending on a lot of different factors. But second base, shortstop eligible, uh, I, I really like Bryson Stott. Over to the mound, how about an American League pitcher who could be a boon? Well, I'm going to go with a Toronto Blue Jay. We haven't talked really any Blue Jays, but Ross Stripling, I think, is somebody who has really made strides this season. If you're looking at his repertoire, uh, the percentages, uh, what pitches he's throwing at what percent of the time are very similar to his all-star season in 2018 with the Dodgers. Recently, especially Ross Stripling, oh, really the whole season, there's only been one start where he's been above uh, three earned runs, which is way back in May. Uh, Jacob, or It's not Jacob's Field anymore, whatever they call it over there in Cleveland. One start where he'd allowed more than three earned runs. For the season, a 284 ERA, a 1.04 whip. Another guy who's less than 50% rostered, pitching for a very good team in Toronto. Fingers crossed. Hopefully they stay a good team. But I think Ross Stripling is still pretty undervalued, especially uh, considering what he's done in the second half. 
I'm surprised, too, that we haven't ended up talking very much about Toronto. Sure. Since you live in Toronto, I live down the road in Waterloo, and my wife's a huge Jays fan. We're going to the game this weekend, as a matter of fact. I'm a Reds fan, so I kind of adopted the Jays about this time of year because there's nothing yeah. to root for with Cincinnati. But Ross Stripling's been terrific. We watch a lot of the games, and he very quietly kind of started off in that swingman, kind of long relief, occasional start guy, and he's almost become the linchpin of that entire rotation. And I think that's important because a big part of guys like that having success for fantasy purposes is, does the team trust him? Will they throw him out there every fifth day? And at this point, I think they have to throw Stripling out there, and I think they're happy to do it. So Ross Stripling's a really good pick. Uh, How about in the National League, a pitcher who could be a boon? I've chosen Alex Cobb uh, because he's been somebody consistently where we're talking about the independent pitching metrics The whole season, he has been one of the more unlucky arms across all of baseball, really, and it started to correct itself over this last month or so. Alex Cobb is somebody that really, uh, heading into the season, a lot of people were hyping up. I was not huge on him, but I was definitely had some shares, and I still do. But a lot of people gave up on him because of really rough bad luck for those first, I guess it was two or three months. He's got the ERA below four now. He's a plus strikeout pitcher. Granted, he's only got four victories this season. San Francisco is about a 500 team. Hopefully, you get a couple more of those down the stretch with some more correction and luck uh, with Alex Cobb. I just think he's a very widely available arm who can give you good strikeouts, some wins, uh, good ratios. Overall, uh, not many pitchers I prefer to grab off waivers in the National League than Alex Cobb. Over to our Baines. How about an American League batter who could be a Bane for the rest of the season? I've gone with another Blue Jay here, and I think it's because he is so highly rostered and he's not really doing much for you at this point. It's Whit Merrifield. I've gone with Whit Merrifield here. He has entered into more of a platoon in center field with Jackie Bradley Jr., which on a on a human level for Whit Merrifield must really be terrible as somebody who was an Iron Man 500 and 600 straight games, and now he's platooning with Jackie Bradley Jr. It's got to be a hit to the confidence. When he's been out there with the Blue Jays, he's been not too bad, but I think he started 12 out of 17, 12 out of 18 games, and he's still in that 90% roster range. I don't know if a part-time player at this point of the season in crunch time, you need all hands on deck this time of year. I don't know that Whit Merrifield is really going to do so much for you outside of play three times a week, maybe maybe get an odd steal here and there, but I'm, I'm pretty ready to move on from Whit where I still have him. Yeah, and the power just disappeared as well. And I think Whit Merrifield is one of those guys, he's appeared on the Baines list a lot this year here at Baseball HQ Radio. And I think it's because there's a certain resistance to getting rid of your sunk costs in fantasy baseball. People invested a second or a third, maybe even a fourth round pick on Whit Merrifield, and he just stinks out the joint. But the owner says, I can't drop him because I spent so much to get him. And sometimes that's not the right way to think about it. You have to say, I made my bet, I lost, I got to move on. And I think Whit Merrifield is a classic example of that for sure, especially in leagues where there are alternatives. I mean, I play in American League only, as I mentioned, and you got to keep him because there's literally nothing you can replace him with, so you might as well. How about a National League batter who could be a bane? The one that I've chosen here is somebody that I've already dropped wherever I had him. That was Marcelo Zuna. Now, he's still sitting around 50% rostered for whatever reason, even though he's not playing. There was that one bizarre game a few days ago where he started against Houston, and everybody was thinking, what what the hell is he doing in the lineup here? He's been outcast, but he was in the lineup for that one game, and that's all he's played now going back. Uh, It was August 21st, and that's the only game he's played now uh, since August the 15th. So... He's not in your lineups. He's not playing. He's being dropped. People are starting to move on from him, but he's still sitting around 50% rostered. Uh, 
get him out of there. Go add in a, a Lars Newt bar or maybe even a Jake Fraley or somebody like that who's actually playing and producing right now as opposed to just a zero on your bench. Add Yuli Gurriel. There you go. Back to the mound. How about an American League pitcher who could be a bane? I went with Johnny Cueto for this one. And, you know, he's another guy who maybe he is just fantastic down the stretch and he keeps this up. But he is a guy where the metrics are showing that he has been very lucky. He does not strike out a lot of batters. He has 73 Ks in 118 innings. Wins are going to be kind of hit and miss, you'd figure, on the White Sox. Um, I think that a lot of people are going to start him. A lot of people are adding him already. He's about 60% rostered because of how strong he's been recently. But he is also a guy who you cannot rely on as far as you could throw him, I think, in, in these playoff matchups. All it takes is one bad outing for your for your season to be derailed at this point. And Johnny Cueto is very rostered and very capable of having a, a stinker here down the stretch. And finally, how about a National League pitcher who could be a bane? Similarly, uh, I'm not so worried about him, but if I had to choose one here, I would go with Eric Lauer because, yes, he is another guy who has put up some good numbers, especially these last two starts were good against the Dodgers, but he is also a guy where the expected stats and the independent pitching stats are a lot higher than the surface numbers. So everybody's going to be starting him down the stretch, especially after two strong starts against the Dodgers. I just worry a little bit about, first of all, how long, how far will the Brewers push him? They're not playing for much this season. They showed us that when they were in first place and they traded Josh Hader. Granted, Hader hasn't been great, but they're now six games out of first. I don't know that they're playing for much this season. Will they be pushing Eric Lauer down the stretch to go six, seven innings in those last few weeks of the season? I have a hard time seeing that. I think that he might be uh, a bit of a booby trap here down the stretch. Joe Rico's Boons, Yuli Gurriel of Houston, Bryson Stott of Philly, Ross Stripling of the Blue Jays, Alex Cobb of San Francisco, his Baines, Whit Merrifield of the Jays, Marcel Ozuna of Atlanta, Johnny Cueto of the White Sox, and Eric Lauer of Milwaukee. Joe, remind our listeners where they can keep up with your work. First off, I want to say thank you so much for having me on, Patrick. It was great speaking with you again, and we're going to do it again on my show soon, I promise. But you guys can find me over on Twitter. I'm at JoeOrico99. J-O-E-O-R-R-I-C-O-99. That's where all of my stuff is posted out from, my podcast, my weekend articles. I do some stuff on Twitter when I have the time as well. Everything is over there. And also go check out sportsethos.com. That's where our other content is posted out, baseball, basketball, football. There's premium content if you guys are into fantasy or just even team content. There's a bunch of stuff. So sportsethos.com and on Twitter at JoeOrico99. Those are the places to find me. Why 99? I'm born in 1999. Oh, okay. I was going to say, I just doubted that there was 98 other Joe Oricos that you had to (laughs) stand in the lineup behind, or I wondered if it was uh, Aaron Judge or Wayne Gretzky kind of thing. (laughs) There's actually uh, another Joe Orico who does fantasy work. He works, uh, I believe, with fantasy pros on the football side. No kidding. We connected on Twitter. I didn't think I'd find somebody else in this niche world we live in who has the same name as mine exactly, but... You never know. You never know what you're going to find. It's a small world. Gosh, I'm glad that this Joe Rico could join us today. Joe, thanks a million for helping us out. I hope to see you at First Pitch Arizona if you're going. And uh, other than that, I hope to make an appearance on your show before the season's over. That'd be lots of fun. It'd be great to be on the other side of the mic. We will definitely bring you on, and I will be seeing you down there in the desert. I have not booked yet, but uh, definitely something I need to be doing. Yeah. I want to ask you a question, actually. Might as well, maybe there are some viewers with the same question. Do I need to rent a car while I go down there, or is everything walking distance? In the first place, you'll be lucky if you can find a rental car. In the second place, if you find one, it's going to be 250 bucks a day. Oh. Uh, I looked into it. The rental car situation in the U.S., and especially in Phoenix, is insane. But the third thing, and a selling point for First Pitch Arizona, if you're still on the fence about going... 
all of the games that we're going to are literally five minutes walk away, including the uh, Fall Stars game on uh, Saturday night. They're, they're playing in, in Sloan Park, which is the Cubs' home base, and our hotel is like literally across a, a park from it. So you can walk all the way, and if you have to get a ride somewhere, there's always guys who drive in from California or they live in the Phoenix area, and if you need a ride... Uh, after every session, they'll say, those of you who need rides, go stand in the corner. And those of you who have rides, go find guys who need rides. And you can always get a ride somewhere from somebody, including back and forth to the airport. So it's another reason to, to check out First Pitch Arizona. You won't have to pay a lot of cab fares or Uber fares. Or I think it's still discounted right now. The price is like close to half off, isn't it? For the registration? For the conference. It's, it's, it's uh, discounted right now, I think, isn't it? Uh, you'd have to check at baseballhq.com. There's a graphic on the right-hand fr- uh, frame. It's a big orange graphic. You can't miss it, and you can catch up with all those kind of details there. I'm not sure. I know it was deeply discounted at the start of the season uh, or at the start of the marketing period, but I don't know what the situation is now. Whatever it is, it's worth it. It's a lot of fun. Oh, yeah. Even just from, you know, getting to meet people that I've interviewed and I have to buy you a beer at this point. We'll go sit and watch <laughs> some baseball, talk some Blue Jays, but... The social aspect is going to be great. The baseball aspect, I'm really looking forward to it. It should be a great time. It's going to be a great time. Joe, thanks a million for coming on. Uh, it was a real pleasure for me, and I hope you had fun. Patrick, it was a pleasure for me as well. We'll do it again very soon. Joe Arico writes for SportsEthos.com and hosts their Fantasy MLB Today podcast. A quick break here, then we're back with our HQ commentaries, the frequent flyer and extra innings, coming up on Baseball HQ Radio. But one more Baseball HQ item I wanted to mention is the Eyes Have It podcast. In this edition, with regular partner Brent Hershey on the IL with a head cold, Chris Blessing is joined by Baseball HQ Miners writers Jeremy Deloney and Rob Gordon to discuss scouting reports on the athletics, Tigers and Dodgers prospects, and some development topics. The Eyes Have It podcast, one of literally dozens of great articles, reports, commentaries, and other content you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time. Player performance validation in facts and flukes, news updates in playing time today, roster forecasting in playing time tomorrow. We have buyer's guides for hitters, starters, and relievers, fantasy market analysis in the market pulse, injury analysis in the big hurt, and groundbreaking fantasy baseball research. As well, we have tools like the player projections updated every day, depth charts, daily dashboards, pitcher matchups, planners, bullpen indicators, batter consistency reports, complete pitcher PQS logs, potential sergers and faders, and other leading indicators for hitters and pitchers. So when you add it all up, expert content plus tools you can use to improve your teams and win your leagues and they're why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business baseball hq radio hey welcome back to baseball hq radio pd here time now for our regular commentaries my extra innings comment is coming up and leading off it's the frequent flyer a commentary on players who might be available in your free agent pool and who have the potential to get enough playing time and production to make them worth a spot on your roster here with a look at chicago cubs first baseman matt mervis is baseball hq analyst alex becky He's bashed his way through the Chicago Cubs farm system. Now he's on the cusp of the majors, according to the Chicago Tribune's Megan Montemuro on August 24th. Even so, Matt Mervis tries to avoid looking at his numbers, the article continued. So maybe, 24-year-old Chicago Cubs first baseman, Matt Mervis avoids looking at his numbers, but his numbers might actually surprise you. 
In fact, he's arguably one of the top five hitters in all of minor league baseball. Justin Stone, the Cubs director of hitting, was quoted as saying in the same Tribune article, currently batting 310 with 26 home runs while climbing quickly through three levels of the minors in 2022. He's one of those really good stories, Cubs president of baseball operations Jed Hoyer reportedly said last month. And maybe Mervis's really good story will get even better if he's indeed promoted to the big leagues this September. However, please keep in mind that Mervis probably isn't eligible for the Rule 5 draft this offseason, and he has only played in 180 minor league games thus far. In other words, perhaps there's no real reason for the Cubs to further accelerate his already rapid development. That's why 24-year-old Chicago Cubs first baseman, Matt Mervis, like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered to be a long shot, who may be worth a flyer if he is still available in your league. Nevertheless, in the same Tribute article, Justin Stone, the Cubs director of hitting, compared Mervis's hitter profile to Anthony Rizzo's, based on similar exit velocities, contact ability, and decision-making with some pop. Therefore, taking a closer look at the numbers that Mervis reportedly intentionally ignores, we can see that Mervis's 79% contact rate is approaching our 80% benchmark on BaseballHQ.com for identifying baseball's best hitters. So he does have contact ability. Worth noting, Rizzo's 78% contact rate in 2022, often used as a leading indicator, perhaps may be comparable to Mervis's 79% contact rate in the minors. And what about decision-making? Employing Baseball HQ's Bad-A-Guy Ratio, which measures a player's strike zone judgment by comparing walks to strikeouts, we can see that Mervis's .4 walks to strikeouts Bad-A-Guy Ratio significantly lags behind Rizzo's current .59-I Ratio with the Yankees in 2022. Once again, while we are perhaps comparing and or demonstrating each player's decision-making ability via strike zone judgment in 2022, please remember that Mervis began 2022 at single-A South Bend, further matriculating through double-A to triple-A Iowa by late July. Thus, his decision-making appears solid, perhaps making your decision to add 24-year-old Chicago Cubs first baseman, Matt Mervis, an easy one, as our frequent flyer for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com. Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky has his frequent flyer commentary here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. Before we get to extra innings, I'll have the answer to our little quiz question from the intro to today's edition of Baseball HQ Radio, which reliever meaning a full-time, zero-starts reliever in the post-1976 free agency era, had 30 combined wins over two consecutive seasons and 51 combined saves with two different teams. You'll have to be of a certain age to remember this one, but right-handed reliever Bill Campbell won 17 games and saved 20 for Minnesota in 1976, then won 13 more games and saved a league-leading 31 for Boston in 1977. Over the two seasons, he had a combined 298 ERA and 123 whip in 307 and two-thirds innings. They don't make them like that anymore. Now it's time for Extra Innings, my weekly commentary on baseball and fantasy baseball, and this week I'd like to talk about Rod Carew. When I was growing up and learning about baseball, one of my heroes was Rod Carew, and a commentary he posted on his newsletter earlier this month has renewed my appreciation. 
First, let me briefly mention some highlights from Carew's Hall of Fame career. He signed as a free agent out of Panama and came to the majors in 1967, when he was 21 years old. He had 561 plate appearances that year, mostly batting second, in a Twins lineup that included future Hall of Famers Harmon Killebrew and Tony Oliva. He batted 292 at a 750 OPS, made the All-Star team, and won the American League Rookie of the Year. He played in Minnesota for 11 seasons, amassing just short of 7,000 plate appearances, batting over 354 times, including a 388 in 1977, and 334 overall, with an 841 OPS that included a 429 slugging percentage, despite hitting only 74 home runs over all those plate appearances. He did have 305 doubles and 90 triples. He was an all-star every season except his last. He finished in the top 10 of MVP voting six times and won the award in that 1977 season when he led the league in batting average, the aforementioned 388, in OBP at 449, in OPS at 1019, and in OPS Plus at 178. He moved on as an early free agent to the Los Angeles Angels, where he played seven more seasons, slashing a combined 314, 393, 392. That's a 784 OPS. For his entire career, 10,550 plate appearances, 3,053 hits, a 328 batting average, 393 on base percentage, and a 429 slugging percentage. That's an 822 career OPS. He was inducted into the Hall of Fame in 1991. Rod Carew was a great player. After his retirement, he wasn't really known for making public statements about baseball, but that changed recently when he spoke out about a dinner he had with the commissioner of baseball's owners, Rob Manfred, in conjunction with the Hall of Fame induction ceremony that included Carew's longtime teammate, Tony Oliva. A side note about Oliva, in Ball 4, Jim Boughton quoted manager Eddie Lopat of the A's as saying about Oliva, the kid will never hit in the big leagues. Well, in the August 10th edition of Carew's newsletter, called, not surprisingly, the Rod Carew Weekly Newsletter, Carew details a strip that he tore off Rob Manfred. Here are some experts of Carew's comments to the commish. Quote, He looked as if he wished there was a trap door that he could have escaped through. The bottom line is that he's not looking out for the best interests of the game. He's not looking out for what the fans want, or what players deserve. Certainly not what us old-timers would like to see. And trust me, there were many conversations all weekend about what we'd like to see different these days. Carew acknowledged that Manfred is working for the owners, but then laid out what Carew sees as two problems with how Manfred has been doing that. Problem one, he said, is that he tries to justify what the owners want as being great for everyone. Problem two is that he's terrible at trying to justify it. Carew complained that baseball looks more like softball these days, with four outfielders and ghost runners in extra innings. He also complained about the influence of analytics in the game, saying modern players know all about their launch angles and their exit velocities, but, and I quote, they don't understand the nuances of the game. The finer points of our sport are being downgraded to the point of being lost, he said. That's why games are longer, slower, and more boring. Then Carew laid all of this at Manfred's feet. Again, I quote, Manfred tries giving off the vibe that it's not his fault. Okay, then, whose fault is it? 
If the commissioner of baseball doesn't have the final word, then nobody does. In this, I think Carew might have lost the thread a little bit. Somebody does have the final word, as he himself acknowledged earlier, the owners. But he went on to say, I think what he's saying is that he, Rob Manfred, is helpless. If so, then maybe we need someone else in that job, or we need to create a new job. Carew mentioned a pipe dream from a decade or so ago. An independent baseball czar was what we needed, a neutral party representing neither the owners nor the players, but the game itself. Carew wrapped up by acknowledging that times change and agreed that baseball in 2022 shouldn't look like it did from 1967 through 85 when he was playing or even from 92 through 2001 when he was coaching. And again, I quote, but we need to make sure that this version of different is also better, he said, because I don't think it is. And many of the 50-something Hall of Famers in that room with the commissioner agree with me. And later in the newsletter, he suggested the change to baseball environment should mean that Pete Rose, the all-time hits leader, should be welcomed into the hall, making a pretty pointed remark about the hypocrisy, and again I quote, Baseball banned Pete for gambling, and now the sport is raking in the big bucks from bookies and casinos. Now, I don't necessarily agree with Rod Carew about everything. Like a lot of old-timers, I think his stance on analytics comes across as misinformed and frankly out of touch. But he has the welfare of the game at heart, and challenging the commissioner about that was something that more people inside the game should be doing. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Patrick David of BaseballHQ.com. I have my extra innings comment here at Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, August the 26th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 33 of the 2022 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guest expert for this Friday full edition, Joe Orico from SportsEthos.com and the Fantasy MLB Today podcast, Joe is a somewhat new guy on the scene, but he's already carving out a niche by focusing on popular online formats. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our Market Watch commentators were Harold Nichols and Ray Murphy, and our frequent flyer commentator was Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. I'm Patrick Davitt, your extra innings commentator and the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I sure hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. And remember, you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. You can also follow my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio. Take a second to go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify, Google, Pocket Cast, wherever you catch your pods, and leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and a rating. It helps us find new listeners, and that helps us keep the podcast going. If your pod getter of choice doesn't find Baseball HQ Radio, please let us know about that or anything else on your mind by emailing bhqradio at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next Friday with another Friday Full Edition featuring an expert interview with Rob DiPietro from the Pull Hitter Podcast, as well as all the usual great stuff, our National League and American League news analysis, our Baseball HQ commentaries, and Rob DiPietro on next Friday's full edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. We'll talk with you again on Friday, and for now, so long.
Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com, where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.